In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Tom Sidlachik, and we've got a good, a getting good, a great show for you today. We're breaking down the smash hit of 2022 Elden Ring and then taking the From formula to the table with the Dark Souls board game. I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, the smash masterpiece. No, the getting good. Yeah. Yeah, it was a attempt at a last moment pivot that was super smooth. Yes, it was. That's why I wanted to point it out to the listeners because they might not have caught it. Yeah, I was going to go back and re-record it, but now I feel like we've just cemented it. <laughs> so uh, we're just going to move on with the show. Joining me on this impressive journey are the Hobby Box, Joe Burns. Heyo. And Dr. B, Brian Camille. Hi, everybody. Brian, you haven't been on the show since our God of War episode way back in February. What have you been up to, my friend? Dude, we are we are living in a really fun time for gaming right now. Um, we've got uh, Tears of the Kingdom came out. Blah. So I played a bunch of that. You're missing out. Too bad. Uh, Diablo 4 came out. Um, was super fun. Then they patched it into the Game ground. of the generation. Right now they're losing they're losing people after the first patch. Uh, hopefully they get that fixed. And then we also have got Final Fantasy 16. Plus we've been trying to get some extra stuff going on right now with uh, getting back into Elden Ring. So it's like trying to figure out when do we have enough time to play anything. Um, so that's been a f- blast. Yeah. Uh, watch your mouth. And <laughs> I'm glad you guys don't have children. <laughs> Brian, you recently invited me to join a Dynasty Fantasy Football League. And in the two or three weeks that have passed since then, you've asked me three times if I've ever played Dynasty before. How is this experience going for you, my friend? It's really interesting because I'm I'm so glad you put this in the show notes. I am the contact point, the only contact point in the league that knows Tom. I'm the only single one. And... We, this league has been together since 2007, so we have a lot of people that have been doing this for, at this point now, what, 15, 16 years of Dynasty. We're one of the, that was one of the first, I think, uh, years people were doing this. Tom has sent, honest to God, probably two of the worst, five top worst uh, trades I have ever seen in Dynasty so far, <laughs> Tom has already sent. Uh, for an example, for those of you that play, obviously age is a huge thing. Tom sent out Geno Smith. Tom was offering that to another team for the 1.2 rookie pick, which is probably Jamar Gibbs or uh, Jackson Smith and Jigma um, from the Seahawks. These players are equivalent to like a Joe Burrow, something of that effect. The trades are ridiculous, and there's only two ways this happens. Either A, the person sending the trade, which would be Tom, doesn't have enough experience to know what he's sending is absolute trash, or B, he assumes who he's sending it to is either stupid or at the very light portion of that program has a severe learning disability. (laughs) He sends trades that make no sense. And I've had two people reach out and go, is this serious or is he f***ing around? Sorry, I swear again. We'll bleep that. Oh, we'll bleep that. Tom will take care of that in post. Yeah, a couple of things to push back on there. First off, Geno Smith is an upgrade for this player. Not at all. He's got Justin Justin Fields. Fields, who... If you look at Justin Fields, the second half of the season, he scored 50 more fantasy points over that time than Geno Smith. So where's the upgrade there? What's your next one? And he's 10 years older. Like you, There's no positive. His name's shorter. His last name's Smith. He's got one less letter, maybe. 
I appreciate that you're being aggressive and trying to take the ball out of my court and not giving me a chance to answer sorry, the point. I'm, I'm sorry. That was a Fox <laughs> News approach. I didn't mean it. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll slow this down. Uh, first off, Geno Smith scored more points than Justin Fields last year. On the season? Justin Fields is a running quarterback and is one hit away from being sidelined for some period of time. And as a Jalen Hurts owner, I appreciate the precarious mm-hmm. nature of that. Okay. I think that Geno Smith is just flat out a better player. I think that Justin Fields is garbage. And after another year in the Bears system, they're going to be picking in the top five again, and they're going to be moving on from Justin Fields. Is so. it possible? It is. But Justin Fields also set the record last year for rushing points for a quarterback. And the fact that he is at the age he is, you're looking at Justin Fields maybe burning out. It's a strong possibility. I don't think he's a great passer. You're right. At the age of 22, 23. Or you're looking at Geno Smith, who is 31 and is tied to this team for a single year. And if he gets cut this year, they will be down $2 million and that's it. You're telling me that's a better long-term trade. He scored more points. He's tied to the Seahawks for three years. He is the established starter for three years. And they just brought in Jackson Smith Enigma, who you mentioned as one of the top draft picks. He has more weapons than ever before. Okay, and one last thing. Geno Smith can be cut after this year for about $2 million. That's fake money. And you're telling me that you would give up Jamar Gibbs straight up if I sent you, hey, I've got Geno Smith. I know you're rebuilding. You're probably not going to be good for three years. This guy will be 34 by the time that you're good. I'm going to give you uh, him and you give me Jamar Gibbs. You're telling me that you would take that trade. I'm just going to say that uh, two, if $2 million is fake money, if anybody wants to give me $2 million, I'll take it. In the <laughs> NFL, baby, when they made $11 billion and they were setting out, what, $341 million per team for the collective revenue sharing? Yeah, that's fake money. That was the worst trade I have seen in years. Well, let's keep going with that. Oh, my when God. You, let's do this. When you propose a trade, do you expect that trade to be the accepted final offer of a trade? For me, every trade is the starting point of a negotiation. So you always start at a very self-advantageous position. In this case, mm-hmm. yeah, I took that to an extreme. I didn't know the other owner. I didn't know the history. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the 1-1 pick. Fair. Uh, it was 1-2. It was an upgraded position. And knowing that he had 1-6, I thought maybe I could walk him back at some point to a first-round pick. But if your first trade if your first offer is so outlandishly one-sided i would say probably most owners are going to take that as rude and ignore it if that got sent to me i'm like this guy thinks i'm a freaking idiot so why even send anything back if their values are that far off in what way can you possibly move that needle to more midline particularly with the advent of the trade uh, the trade calculators they just show where the markets are they're not perfect that's for sure but you can at least check to see if something is somewhat reasonable. You should have added, according to what that trade calculator said, uh, Devontae Smith, wide receiver two of the Eagles to just bring the value closer. That's insanely far off. Can we trade other teams' players? That'd be great. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Garrett Wilson is on the block, people. <laughs> oh, he is. <laughs> Anyways, I think I'm going to win this league. I, uh, I took over a very experienced team that is older but there's a lot of talent on the team i think barring injuries i have a legitimate shot to win the league and then we'll figure out age at some point in the future yeah, that's, that's always the hard part is like because there is a, just a massive part of this game that is luck right if you oh, yeah. have the wrong injury the wrong person you're just screwed but you're talking about how an offer that's too insulting to start with could turn someone off for all time uh-huh. this actually built a bridge for me because you called and asked if i had ever played dynasty before so i texted the other owner i'm like hey uh 
I'm sorry if that offer was outlandish, and it opened a line of communication. So I appreciate you calling to scold me, uh, because it opened up my line of communication directly to the other owner. So uh, thanks for building bridges, Brian. The last thing, the last thing I will say on it, because Tom is so Tom. I called him, and it was an awkward conversation. I'm like, is this real? Tom, it's real if he accepts it. The way that Tom said it was, I like trades I could win, which my wife heard over the phone. Kelsey's actually a, a dynasty champion in that league you're in. She won it in 2013. She laughed so hard at that comment because she goes, Brian, that's just Tom being a Tom. And I'm like, <laughs> she wasn't kidding. I have a lot of arguments with my best friend about this. Like, He oh likes God. to propose trades that make both teams better. Like, He's like, it makes both of our teams better. Thomas Jones will improve your roster. And I'm like, I don't care about making your team better. I care about making me better. You getting better is actually detracting from the trade value for me. In Dynasty, it's all about relationships. You're going to have to learn a new way, baby. So, Dynasty Leagues, I've been in a Dynasty League now for six years. And granted, oh no, five years. Um, granted, I didn't want to be in the league to start with. It was a group of people. Or some of them were in a league that I've been in for a lot longer and then they wanted to start a dynasty, and I said, no, nah, I'm already in too many leagues. I don't want to do it. They were one guy short, and so I basically got railroaded into being in it. Um, Tale as old as time. Yeah, and so the same guy has won the league four out of five years, and it's just like, and then he he is the biggest jerk about it, too. And it's not somebody I know. I just know Scooby Squad is his team name. Um, and so it's just like, I if, if he is a condescending jerk face this year, I'm just going to drop. I lost the league because of that same kind of crap. It's just, and it's so painful because it's hard to get anybody and uh, trades don't really ever happen in that league. And so it's just like, okay, well, I guess I'll get what three free agents or, or rookie picks and we'll see what that does. So Bernsey, we've played in a league together for a long time. My longest standing league is 25 years old and you've been in it for roughly 20 I have something very special lined up for the next time that I win it. So I hope that it's not going to make you join the league. And it's a way that I'm going to troll the other owners and commemorate myself. Uh, but hopefully it's not enough to push you out of the league. Well, that's all right, because if I win before that and I'm the first three-time champion, well, you can do whatever you want. I know I'm still better than you. Last thing on it. Uh, when you talk about Dynasty Leagues, the whole point of a Dynasty League is lots of trading, right? That's, yeah. that's the main draw to it. I think... From 2020 to 2023, my team had 13 trades alone, just yeah. me reshaping that thing. And that's the fun of it, is negotiating yeah. and building it out. Yeah. So I, I really hope you kind of get the bug for it, because, man, it is so much fun. Yeah, I've had one off-season with you, and I can already tell you're a tinkerer. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Bernsey, let's uh, pivot to you here. You hate From Software with a burning, fiery passion. Was prepping for this show just an agony for you, or what? I, I mean, I wouldn't say it was an agony. It I mean, it was frustrating. Was it better or worse than eating glass? I mean, I've never eaten glass, and I'm going to try not to ever in my life. Um, Broaden your horizons, man. I I will say this. You know, when we talked about Bloodborne, when we recorded that, what was that, a year ago? Two years ago? Two, I think. Yeah. It was during COVID. Yeah, it was. I remember sitting at Brian's house with our masks on to play. It was probably about two years ago, yeah. And so um, I remember us talking about the fun to frustration quotient with FromSoft Games. Um, and how like Demon Souls definitely was more frustrating than fun. Um, Bloodborne to me, for the most part, was more fun than frustration, um, or more enjoyment at least. 
Um, Elden Ring is a real weird case, and we'll get into it as we talk about it. A um, timeless masterpiece. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Going back a second to the football, have any of you guys seen the quarterback show on Netflix? I've heard nothing but good things, and I heard yeah. uh, um, Kirk uh, is just... As dorky and oh, yeah. mayonnaise personality like as you'd think. Yeah, but it's fun. It's fun to see. Uh, it's a really great show. If you guys like football, which I know you do, um, it's worth a watch whenever you get internet, Tom. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> if you want to help restore our internet at Outside Is Overrated, <laughs> support the show at Patreon.com/oio. That's Patreon.com/oio. Your support goes towards the media we consume for the show, equipment, and other expenses like having a podcast hosting platform, internet, all this other fancy newfangled technology. We'd also like to thank our sponsor at Premier Health. Check out their website at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. And there is a new tier on Patreon coming up um, starting in August. Where if you donate $5,000 for one month, Tom can cement over the spot where the internet connection is so his neighbor can't ever dig into it and break his internet for a month or change. It's such a great opportunity. I should really bring it up with my sponsor. Brian, do you think my sponsor would open up the checkbook for $5,000 to cement over the ditch in my house? If you're writing, if you want me to write that kind of check, there's going to be some more things that get involved in that particular thing than your retaining wall. All right. Well, I'm going <laughs> to loosen a up. Child, my, I don't know. We're, I'm going to figure this out. Loosen up my wrist a little bit and uh, just read that website one more time: <laughs> PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. If you enjoy our sunshiny personalities, you can email the show at OverratedPod at gmail.com. That's OverratedPod at gmail.com. Follow Burns at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter and Twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns. If you want to enjoy, invite me to your fantasy football league. I'm at ThompsonLogicOyo on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and I am just a master trader. You can also follow the show at Facebook.com slash OutsideIsOverrated. We start our discussion today with the Dark Souls board game. Burns, you want to share what this game is also informally known as? No, like that doesn't even make sense anymore. I don't know why you've never deleted it off the show notes. It just makes me laugh every time. Every time I start doing the show, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's that funny joke Burns made about Sanctuary. In other words, let's start with S. Sanctum. Sanctum. Yeah, I always call it Sanctuary. Yeah, I love that game. For like three weeks when I was in eighth grade and we were taking anatomy, someone nicknamed me that in Mora High School for three weeks. So I thought that actually somehow you drew that out of like... (laughs) My high school days, because I looked at that. I'm I mean, like, our high school my, days. We went to high school together. I looked at that. I'm like, how did Tom remember that? <laughs> <laughs> so now that I know it's an unrelated joke, I feel a lot better. See, and that reminds me, like high school, like that's that's very much high school humor, right? Um, Some would say we've never left it. That's true. Oh, Brian just paid me on a uh, football bet from high school. Thanks, I, my friend. I don't remember the <laughs> bet, but I trust Tom is probably not lying about it. The bet was uh, at the tail end of his career, John Randall left the Vikings to play out the last of his career with the Seahawks. And we had a heated discussion in choir practice one day. Uh, and you were absolutely adamant that he was still on the Vikings. And you talked about all the sources that you had, and, like the Vikings uh, print newsletter that you got and all this. I'm like... That's fine. He plays for the Seahawks now. And we made a bet, and you never paid on it until now, 13 years later. Real quick question. Last aside, I swear, probably not. But um, so if you were tenors, who your favorite uh, Vikings player of all time is, who would you say? Can we can we not can we limit Moss out of there in AP because otherwise it's too easy? I think I'm gonna mess up my first name, but uh, Keith Millard. Okay. Yeah. Why Millard? 
he was the first Vikings player that I fell in love with. Uh, he was a great, I think he was a defensive tackle. He was definitely on the D-line. I remember he hurt his knee in a game against Tampa Bay and was never the same again. Mm. Uh, but he was like 75 or 77. Like, I don't know. I was just like a teenager and I had a man crush on Keith Millard. I would say for just excitement factor, if, if we rule out Moss, rule out AP, and, and I always love Chris Carter, but I'll go something a little bit more recent. Percy Harvin was always so fun to watch mm-hmm. because the guy And he was, was a piece of crap, so... He, he <laughs> was absolutely a piece of crap, but he was a talented piece of crap, and it was insane to watch how that guy was built like a running back, and I think if he was in the modern NFL, he would he's like another version of Debo. He would just destroy... My favorite's John Randall. That's what made me think of it. So Yeah, John Randall was great. We had some really fun defensive linemen in, around that era in the yeah. 90s. Real quick on him, did you guys know that during his weigh-in at the NFL Combine, he had a padlock and chain around his waist that he had smuggled into his sweatshirt because <laughs> he was worried he wasn't going to weigh enough? And so he could hear it clinking when he got on the scale, but nobody said anything. That's awesome. Huh. Six-footers unite! <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. What were we talking about? Dark Souls. Board games, that's right. Released in 2017, the Dark Souls board game is a strategic tactical action game. You play as one of four different characters battling minions, earning souls, buying gear, and leveling up as you explore tiles and prepare for boss fights. This game was published by Steamforge Games, who also did Horizon Zero Dawn, which we discussed on the Horizon Forbidden West podcast in, I think, February of last year? This year? When did Forbidden West last come out? Year. Last year. It was year. last year because it was last It was last November. Because, again, it came out around Elden Ring. It, Horizon games always come out when, like, the biggest of the biggest coming out. Because before that, it was Breath of the Wild. That had come out at the exact same time as Horizon um, Zero Dawn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we hated that board game. Hopefully, this one went a little bit well for us. Yeah, it went a little bit well. Words are very challenging. <laughs> Designed by David Carl, who also did War Machine Prime Mark II and Mark III, Dark Souls, the card game, God Tier, God Tear, God Tier, God Tier, the Undercity and Iron Kingdoms Adventure Board Game, uh, Alex Hall, who also did God Tier, Matt Hart, who did Guild Ball, Resident Evil 2, Monster Hunter World, and Richard Loxham, who did Guild Ball and Resident Evil 2. Dark Souls, the board game, has a board game geek rating of 6.5. Do you think that, like, these game board designers, these game designers are, like, at a bar and that's what they use to pick up a woman? Like, hey, do you know that I'm uh, one of the primary developers of God Tier? Like, do you think that would really work? <laughs> I mean, seeing as how that's a middling miniatures game, I don't know that that would really work with the ladies, but... Uh, it's a niche pickup line. It really is. <laughs> I mean, it's unique, right? I mean, if you worked on Massive Chalice, sure. Right? That was the Kickstarter one that made, like, millions, right? Massive Chalice? Sure. I thought it was, like, the most popular Kickstarter of all time. Oh, Kingdom Death Monster? Yeah, that. Yeah. That was super close, though. Yeah, yeah. It also had words in the title. <laughs> well, fine. Let's make some fun of Brian. Brian, what's your experience with tactical battle games? Not a lot, actually. I mean... The... And to be fair, you don't play a ton of board games. Like, you primarily pay for the show play for the show don't you i do i don't he really pays for the show too yeah, you do thank you <laughs> thank you things that start with p for the show so um yeah <laughs> I, I play him as kind of like the the every man that we call casey to kind of get in and involved and and tom actually really thank you because you understand that about me so you always give me very basic characters i warrior in this one i swing an axe that's all i did and it was great so i appreciate the fact that you guys definitely can see more layers to how these games work the second we start and you guys tend to take the lead and that makes the experience actually a lot easier because my god if i was the one making decisions we would have been done after the first 30 minutes 
And uh, your experience is also valuable because, like, you're kind of the outsider for board games. And that's why I like doing these themed shows around, like, a theme like From Software. Because, like, you're super into Elden Ring and you, you're you going to be our heavy lifter there. But having the non-board gamer's perspective on something with as intricate as movement as the Dark Souls board game, I think that's super interesting. So oh. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you didn't go full Tales of the Borderland and just, like, walk out 37 <laughs> seconds after... Coming downstairs. Live on and that's gonna become uh, OIO lore at some point. It is. Just, just yeah, I have it tattooed forever. on my scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> Brian that's plus why Borderlands. Formally known as that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought you knew that. We talked about it all the time. All he could fit on there was a lowercase b. The rest of it will have to add in miniature. <laughs> Phoenix says it's a good size sack. <laughs> <laughs> Bernsey, your level of experience and passion for tactical battle games. Uh, I mean. It's interesting when you list it off this list of games, like I've played or own the majority of them. So like I own a starter set from Guild Ball that I got at Adepticon. Uh, that's okay if you like soccer. Um, the Horizon Zero Dawn board game we played together. Uh, God Tier I own. We haven't played it yet, but we're going to with, uh, uh, with uh, our gaming group that we go to Adepticon with sometime soon. Um, and I played a demo of Resident Evil 2, the board game, for a little bit at Adepticon a few years ago. Um, it's interesting that these guys are all like those tabletop miniature game designers, and it kind of makes sense when we played it, because um, it has that similar feel. It's also not surprising, because of how different this was from the Horizon board game, that these aren't the same designers as the... It's the same company, but they're not the same designers that did the Horizon board game. Um, and as we get into it for probably for the benefit of it. Um, I agree. And I really enjoy this genre. I mean, I just love chucking dice, killing monsters, clearing out dungeons, and grabbing loot. Like, that is mm -hmm. as Tom-friendly as a game gets. Quick question for you, though, Burns. How close is this to, like, a real miniatures war game? Like, how far is it from the Dark Souls board game to Warhammer 40,000? Um, so the, the closest analog wouldn't be Warhammer. Um, for this, I think a closer analog would be like War Machine, um, which is why it's not surprising that it's on there because it's more of like a skirmish level, like tabletop war game. Uh, the big difference is that um, with tabletop war games, usually you are using either a movement tool or, or like measurements with a, with a tape measure or something like that. Um, and then um, you're usually rolling larger amounts of dice and the defender usually rolls dice too. So like in a tabletop miniatures game, it's usually a person versus a person, um, whereas this is cooperative against a AI for the game, um, which is the pieces of it that help make it a little bit more of like a board game, right? And then the more simplified movement um, and having like, if that all contained within the board game to have like the environment um, and the layout of everything. Whereas if you're doing a tabletop war game, usually that's part of the starting out process is you will place terrain alternatingly to create what the map looks like that you're playing on. Um, so those are some of the differences between um, this and then if you take that jump up to a tabletop war game. That sounds like a lot of work. Brian, do you think you will ever play a tabletop war game like that? Unless somebody sets the whole thing up for me, no. But I will say, like, when occasionally when I go to the source, things like that, 
It is really fascinating to look at some of the structures that are being built for some of these um, Warhammer games. Mm -hmm. um, the one that one that just recently blew my mind was I was at Bad Wolf uh, Gaming, which hopefully you're going to hear an interview at some point here on the channel. And uh, what they do is they do D&D sessions with paid DMs. One of the rooms, they have the uh, DM makes intricate 3D models, these beautiful mm -hmm. landscapes of things. And it's fascinating to see how much time and effort gets put into it. Yeah. No, it's 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 the the amount of time and effort that people put into some of these some of these like to make these tabletops come come to life and different games lend themselves to having more terrain. So like for instance X-Wing, you just need to plop a bunch of the asteroids around the map and that's all you really need. Um, Song of Ice and Fire is similar. You have certain types of terrain that you place down. You only put a handful out there. But then there's like games that are more skirmish level, like Infinity, and you will have like almost an entire city kind of built up, and just have like little alleyways or spaces between, and then they'll go up the buildings and can shoot down from them and stuff. Um, so it can get pretty elaborate um, when you get into some of those more um, some of those more hardcore tabletop miniature games. And Burns, we're both in our 40s. What percentage of your life would you estimate you've spent just reading rule books for tabletop war games? Um, 37? No, probably not a large percentage. Like, I've, I've dabbled through a lot of it. Most of the time, what ends up happening is you end up playing with people that have played the game before, and you learn that way with the tabletop miniatures games. Um, that's most of them, how it's been. I really liked Warhammer fantasy. And so I would buy all the books and read them. Cause I enjoyed like the storyline and the fluff. Um, and so that I've spent a lot more time on than actually just reading like rule books. I've probably spent more time reading like D and D rule books than I've actually spent reading like tabletop miniature game rule books. Quick Fair. question for both of you. We're in our forties. Have you guys paid more than a month's mortgage or rent on your board game collection at this point and if so how many more times like two months three months because it's one thing i've learned about this particular hobby it ain't cheap no. when we were talking about games tom's pretty savvy about getting things at discount from different kinds of places but like this this stuff is not cheap nope. to do especially not anymore um i'm probably under like my board game collection is a lot smaller and i've got a lot of things as gifts um so i am probably under my monthly mortgage payment burns i'm guessing you're on the other end of the spectrum i'm over i'm maybe close to it's so hard to tell um i'm maybe close to 1.5 times or double Woo. um for like the what 90 ish games that i have but like a handful of those are the large amount of that um, What's like, the most expensive one you have? I mean, Aeon Trespass Odyssey was about $550 total. <laughs> and that was the all-in backing? That was for everything, yeah. Oh. Plus then shipping and some other stuff I added on after that. That one was the most expensive I had. Um, and then like... Frost but you play it every day, so like that's a win, right? No, I don't play that one every day. <laughs> like the best, the best ones that I've purchased were Gloomhaven and Frosthaven. Like Gloomhaven, I ended up spending probably total... Like two hundred dollars on that game. It was a hundred. It was a little less than. It was a hundred plus, like the add-ons when I got the Kickstarter, and then I spent eighty dollars on an organizer for it, and then probably like twenty dollars in card sleeves. And we've played that for probably, probably like four or five hundred hours. Um, and Frosthaven's going to be the same. That was a little bit more expensive. Um, but worth every penny. Bit. But worth, yeah, it's definitely worth it. So, Burns, you've spent that much money on board games. You spent that percentage of your life just 
absorbing rules for board games. We get together to play the Dark Souls board games. Ryan walks into my house. He comes down in the basement. He's like, all right, I didn't read anything. I didn't watch anything. How does this thing work? Not a thing. How is it playing with Brian? <laughs> It was good. It was fine. Oh, yeah. It was it was fine. Brian, you played as a warrior. Let's talk a little bit about your build and how you got into the action. I was hoping you were going to be mean. You weren't mean and you just moved no. right on. Did you notice that? No. No. Because it was like this one a lot smoother than when we played the Bloodborne board game, yeah, I think. I think so. Yeah. So. I, I think this one's smoother than any board game that we've played as a group, which is just Bloodborne, uh, now this, Horizon, Horizon. Zero Dawn. I played a couple more games with Brian, but like this was a relatively smooth experience. And we figured it out pretty quick. Like the the mechanics of the game are pretty straightforward, and that made it a lot easier. And it definitely felt like a Souls game, right? You're dealing with stamina, you're dealing with uh, health. The the part that was so goofy is like I started out as a warrior because Tom's like, okay, we need to give the caveman like a stick, <laughs> and that's great. But then like because of how the game works, I eventually became a wizard, and like that transition was quick. And it was like one round later, okay, Brian, you're casting you're casting spells. I'm like, what? <laughs> so it was just it was a fun experience. It was an interesting transition, and it was kind of a byproduct of the loot that we got. Yeah. I have loot in here somewhere. I viewed it as kind of. A weakness of the game but there's a huge loot deck and if you find a room with a treasure chest you get to draw two pieces of loot which could be weapons it could be armor they could be spells it could be different upgrades to equipment uh, you can also spend your souls to buy loot and we didn't have great loot luck as a group yeah but the things that we did find seemed to benefit brian so we just outfitted you burns and i are still running around with yeah. our starter gear and like you're rolling orange dice well so and, and the reason why is because so each weapon is going to have a certain amount of one of your four stats that you need to have to that level in order to use it. And then it costs you X amount to level up your stats, just like how you'd spend souls in the game, in the video game, to upgrade your stats. It's the same type of thing here. And so you see what that minimum is that you need to get to in order to equip that loot. And then, okay, well, who can get there the cheapest in order to actually equip this and use it? And it was you, like, all the time. Yeah, and you needed... The first time we went through, we kind of realized we should have been upgrading a little bit quicker because we were kind of slogging through. We were figuring it out, yeah. but it was we were doing it the painful way. Let me set that up just a little bit. So you take the game out of the box. You lay out some big tiles, uh, and each tile is going to have a face-down encounter card on it, and that encounter card will tell you what enemies are on it. I picked a mini-boss at random for us to fight, and the mini-boss tells you what types of encounters you have. So for the Titanite Demon that we chose, we had one level 1 encounter and three level 2 encounters yeah. before we got to the mini-boss. Uh, so we did the level 1 encounter, then we're like, alright, we survived, let's go fight the level 2 encounter. Whereas, in hindsight, it would have been very smart for us to go back to the bonfire after that first yeah. level 1 encounter, buy some gear, try to get a little bit stronger, because I think we got our butts kicked in that second room. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and and it's a tricky thing to figure out because you can only go to the bonfire so many times before it's like, okay, now you got to go all the way through, otherwise you lose, right? Well, you can only do in a formal rest of the bonfire. You have some expendable resources, like you have your Estus flask, which can heal all the damage and stamina that you've accumulated. You've got a luck token that allows you to reroll a die. Okay, that's and, right. Yep, and those things recharge when you go to a bonfire. But like, we could have stopped by to go shopping after literally yeah. every encounter if we that's wanted right. to. We just didn't realize it until like oh we have all these souls maybe we should use some of these to see if we can get some gear yeah so when we actually did do it i ascended to like the max level over the course <laughs> of one round it was it was a stark change um but the the more we played the better we got at figuring out how to approach rooms and again that's very much like elden ring once you die enough times you're like okay what's a better way to do this well it's very much the soul's 
formula because in Dark Souls, like you'll go out, you'll fight the monsters, you'll get souls, you'll go to a bonfire and you'll rest and then everything resets. Everything goes back the way it was. So in the board game, they emulate that really well. You go and rest at the bonfire and everything resets. So you know, if you've been to a room before, you know what enemies are going to be there, where they're going to start, what their stick is. So like that first time through, that it can be very challenging because you don't know who's coming from where and what their bag of tricks is. Like, for instance, when I was playing with Phoenix after our gaming session, there is an enemy on level one and level two encounters that just runs at you with a big axe. Like, he doesn't formally do an attack, but he moves one space, and if you're on that node that he moves into, he hits you for five. And then he just turns and runs at the next player. Like, he just runs and attacks. And, like, we didn't know that was coming the first time. Like, we're both standing right on the node that he runs into. It's like, uh-huh. oh, great. So we both get whomped. Then one of us goes, and then he activates again, whomps the other one. It's like, oh, well, I barely survived this. And it's I- tricky because you only get so many uh, refreshes. Like, I think it's, was it three for us or five? It might have actually been four. With It varies depending on the number of players. In a two-player mm-hmm. game with Phoenix, we had four rest of the bonfire, four sparks. I think in a three-player game, we had three. I think it goes down one by each player count yeah, you have. We were already at, by the time that we decided, hey, we better make a push through this because we're almost out of rest. We were like down to our last one. Yeah. We had to go. And unfortunately, I, I had taken a big enough hit on that on the end boss that that ended our game and yeah. there was there was really no way out of it because it's it's very interesting because it's a combination of stamina and health and they each fill from each side of a, essentially a meter and if they meet in the middle and you can no longer like ex, uh, burn either one or it exceeds what you have left for open space you're dead yeah. so you have to be super mindful and not just you but like the whole party right. is wiped right yeah. and it's like if I if I use too much stamina to do this move you are now much more vulnerable to death it was a very interesting dynamic yeah and so like my character class I was the herald and that one was useful in that instance because I was able to remove the fatigue from from characters with some of the with the abilities that I had and so that was beneficial to kind of keep us going forward if we wanted to kind of push for another room or needed to push for something else um, and so and then the other thing that I had that other characters at least didn't start with was I had a a weapon that had reach on it so I could attack things from two nodes away or from a node away instead of having to be on that node uh, which was helpful for positioning and trying to either pull attacks when I should be pulling attacks or trying to get away when I could get away. Um, so that was a really interesting, I think, aspect when uh, we played to be able to have that uh, as a difference from you kind of having to run in and do things and then you as the rogue having to kind of dance around everywhere. Yeah, do you want to break down what you did as a rogue? Because you were quite different than both of us. It was the assassin, and the assassin's whole shtick is dodge because your life literally depends on it. (laughs) When a monster attacks you, and the way activations work in this game, you walk into a room, the monsters spawn, and then all the monsters activate, then one of the player characters activates, then all the monsters activate, then one player character activates. So we walk into a room, all the monsters charge at us, and if it's Joey's turn, Joey gets to do his thing. Then all the monsters are going to attack all of us, and then Brian gets to do his thing, and then I get to do mine. There's two ways that you can mitigate damage in this game. There is a straight-up block value where you get so many block dice for the shields and armors and sometimes weapons that you're carrying, and if an enemy is going to hit you for four damage, you roll your block dice. If you can roll four hits, you negate all four damage. If you roll two hits, you negate two of the four damage, and you take two. There is also a dodge mechanic, which is riskier, but if you get the number of successes right, you get to avoid all the damage. Mm-hmm. So for the basic level enemies that we mostly fought, you just needed one success in the block die, and you would mitigate all the damage. So early on, I had one block die. I was like, well, 
roughly 50-50 chance that I'm going to avoid all this damage. So I always blocked. Then when Brian got his good armor, I got to take his cast-off armor, which added another block die. It's like, all right, great. And then eventually I got another weapon that gave me a third, uh, I think I said block, but a third dodge die. Dodge, yeah. So I, I essentially... My whole game was around poisoning, doing little bits of damage, poisoning enemies, and then dodging to mitigate all that damage, which for me, having played two different characters now and one that was more melee face, more block face, like I love the dodge mechanic. I yeah. thought dodge was my favorite and the most interesting part of this well, game. Because with the dodge also, once you dodge, you can move to an adjacent node. Correct. And one thing that we worked in the rules, when you do the dodge action, whether it works or not, you get to move one node. Oh, you still move even if you yep. fail. Even if you eat oh, the damage, you still get that benefit and maneuverability, which would have been tremendously helpful as we were fighting the boss. In a boss fight specifically, there's some movement rules when you're running at the boss, but when you're dodging, you get to negate those. So like if you're standing in front of a boss when he attacks, if you dodge, you can dodge to wherever his weak spot is. Got it. And during our experience, I, Joe and I had to be so mindful of that boss because if he hit us, he was ripping us apart. Yeah. But he could not hit Tom for the life of him. Yeah, most of his dodges required one success, and I had three dice that I was using with, I think, a 50% chance of success in each one of them. Dodge was a cool mechanic. I really enjoyed the dodge mechanic. I also played as the Herald, the same class as Burns, when I was playing with Phoenix, and I upgraded from the spear to an axe right away. With the axe, there's no reach, so you had to be right on top of the enemies to fight them. So we ran into many positioning problems, like Feeny had a two-handed sword, and so she was mowing through enemies, but she could only attack one per turn. Uh, So I had to try to mitigate damage where I could. I had to step in and try to clear off some of the smaller enemies where I couldn't. It was a very fine balancing act, because, again, positioning nearly killed us multiple times. We had that one dude with the axe. We were both standing there, whomped us both, whomped me again before I even had a chance to activate after we beat the mini boss and moved on to the second phase of the game, we had a level three encounter, and there's these big sentinel dudes. Ooh, wow. They have a pole arm. They attack at range one oh, for six damage. That sucks. Gross. Same thing. We were standing right uh-huh. there, right on top of them. <laughs> By that point, I had a heal spell, and like we're both half dead. I'm like, well, Phoenix has the big sword. Hopefully, she can get out of trouble for herself. I heal myself and I run, uh, and then she ends up wiping, and we have to reset at the bonfire. That's as far as we made it. That stinks. Well, and I saw because she she had a two handed sword, and again we talked about how the fatigue and the, it's the stamina fatigue, same thing. How it is so important for her to swing her strongest ability. It was five exhaustion, which is half her life, which yeah. is half of her life. Yeah. And so, when you've already been dinged by a big halberd before that, like her bar was full after the first one. So she had to pop her Estus potion and she wound up getting mobbed and taken down before she had a chance to clear out the rest of it. Yep. And that's what kind of happened to me is I used a big attack, took a hit and that was enough to kill me. There was nothing left. It's crazy. Yeah. Blame the Herald. He's the healer. Bernsey, we play a fair amount of co-op games together, and I know you're very fond of co-op games. What is, how did the co-op of this game feel when you had somebody who did absolutely no prep work walking into it? I, I think it, Was I, Brian a major hindrance? Would you say that Brian ruined this experience for us? No, um, not at all. I, like, I think that's, a, that's the good thing about co-op. I'm games. trying really hard to bring you in a direction here. I know you are, but, it's, but, it, but it's, it doesn't work. Uh, because the thing about co-op games is as long as everybody's willing to learn, not everybody needs to know the rules like inside and out. As long as one person kind of has them on lockdown... Kind of like when I was your guys' Gloomhaven Sherpa for a little bit. As long as one person knows the rules and can help guide that, everybody else, as long as they're willing to learn and paying attention, can figure it out. And, you know, Brian figured out what he needed to do. And, like, by the time we got a little bit into the game and after we learned by taking our lumps, 
we all kind of knew this is what we should do. And we were talking back and forth about figuring things out. And so I think the co-op functions in the battle are really nice and strategizing to pull the monsters in different or the enemies in different ways, um, I think is one of the high points of the game. I agree. Brian, your thoughts on the co-op as a person who doesn't play a ton of board games, would you have liked to have been in more direct competition with us like you were in Horizon Zero Dawn when you were just <laughs> causing chaos and grabbing all the loot and toming as much as you could? Sometimes that stuff is fun, but I also like actually true co-op play. Sometimes I like working with my friends to try to do something because it's competitive is great. But Would you say that time, you're like 99% trolling, 1% cooperative? Oh no, I'm not you. <laughs> I just, that is not accurate at all. Perfect. Um, well, I'm curious on where you draw that ratio for me from, because we don't play a ton of board games together. Like, Tom, you approach life like it's one big board game. It's whatever you can do to troll. That's really what you want to do. And it's mostly, you're not doing it out of malice. You're just doing it for your own entertainment. Yeah, That's all right. one thing that people that don't know you, I had to preface it to our dynasty group. I'm like, just so you guys know, he's doing most of this stuff for his own humor. The jokes aren't for you. They're just for Tom. That's, that's how I describe Casper's sense of humor and yours. Well, it's also, I think, I think if Tom isn't needling you, um, he doesn't really like you. That's a, that's true. Pat, that shows. Pat is Tom's heterosexual life mate. Yep. You can tell just by the way he talks about him. Well, Burns, I don't need you that much, do I? Like, we spend a fair amount of time together. We do the podcast together. Like, we play a lot of stuff both online and in person together. Tom doesn't like me. <laughs> all right show's over everyone go home cat's out of the bag see like it, it just depends right like i do feel like if someday if if we're all on a sad day at pat's funeral and tom steps up and he's about to make his speech he's gonna say good and then leave and sit back down <laughs> and that would be the perfect end of that chapter i'd <laughs> uh, get you patrick now nah, you yeah. at least throw in pat plus butt before you sat down i would think oh what do you think the tombstone's gonna say <laughs> We paid for with OIO bucks. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> My favorite yeah, element. Plus, brought to you by Premier Health. <laughs> Check out their website at premierhealth.com. Oh, God, I forgot the MN. <laughs> and while we're discussing our favorite elements of this game, the monster fighting was great, right? Like, yes. just the fighting monsters. And, like, Phoenix didn't have a lot of interest in playing this game until, like, she saw it set up and heard me talking about it. And she's like, oh, well, I'll fight the monsters with you. I'm like, great well here's here's your stuff here's like how attacking works and uh it's surprisingly easy to onboard someone yeah. into this game because like the monsters are on the board it's like well here's what they do here are your options what do you want to do yeah. all right great now they're gonna hit us all in the face we survive great here are our options what do we want to do oh yeah and like just for example yesterday i i did my first dm session for my nephews my brother-in-law my wife and like my brother-in-law Nick had never played and we're playing 5e it it took probably about an hour for Nick to kind of get an idea mm -hmm. of what was going on because there's so much yeah. happening and I felt like they were really good about keeping this thing tight so that you could see once it got streamlined you could move yeah yeah um one question I did have um because I had a conception about Dark Souls compared to like other Souls games that I have played and I'm not 100% sure um, what if that's right or not. Dark Souls to me always seemed like it was a lot more of like a sword and board plotting and not a lot of like dodging out of the way and stuff like that but much more sort of like the you, you try to block at the right time and then do your attacks and recognize what the patterns are of the bosses. Is that 
a proper like identification of how Dark Souls works? I'd say that's accurate. Uh, it's I'd say that's mostly accurate. Sword and Board is, I think, widely regarded as the most straightforward path through the game, which means that I've never sword and boarded it because I'm a big dumb idiot who never wants to finish anything that he starts. <laughs> uh, but I would say that maybe discredits the dodging in a little bit because okay. dodging is crucial in it. There are times where like the enemies just hit too hard to absorb all the blows with your shield. Got it. So I'd say it is. there's a focus on sword and board, but dodging is a critical element. Okay. Okay, because I just wasn't sure if that was off a little bit, whereas it like in this game, it seemed like if you could dodge, it was better to dodge than it was to defend just because of the strength of the attacks coming in and trying to be able to block that is is, is kind of difficult in this. So it's almost like the preferred way is to do the dodging. And that's why that's why Bloodborne is so different. They actually give right, you a shield at the beginning of the game as a troll going, oh, look how useless this thing is. Just keep dodging. Yep. I'll add that a little bit further into this game, the dodge values go up. So like you need to roll more successes oh, to successfully dodge. So like when we were fighting the gargoyle as the mini boss fight, like he had at least one attack that was a dodge difficulty of three, which is... A relatively tall order. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the things we fought had dodge difficulties of one and two, and with my three dice, I was cruising through a lot of stuff, yeah. and as like a Hail Mary, you had a better chance of avoiding all the damage. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So no, uh, I went full Casey and broke the game. That's uh, <laughs> That's pretty much the point there. Speaking of the bosses, one interesting mechanic in this game was how the bosses work. Brinzi, do you want to set this part up and whether or not you enjoyed it? Yeah, so and, and the first part of it is pretty similar to most games. I mean, there's there's other mechanics in other board games that are similar to this, but basically you have an AI deck for the boss, and it, it'll consist of a certain amount of cards. And, and usually you leave out like one or two of them so that each time you fight them it'll maybe be a slightly different combination of abilities. But then once you get the boss down to, and that's that's basically saying where their weak points are, where they're attacking, where they're moving, that's telling them what they're doing on their activation, and then where you can try to target them or hit them um, when you're trying to do damage to them. Um, and then once you get them down to half health, or at some point, then you mix in the more advanced AI cards, and then you shuffle everything. So before that, the cards are always going in the same order. So similar to like, and I haven't played Dark Souls, but similar to other Souls games where it's like, okay, you kind of get an idea of the differences in their attacks and then you get them to their second phase and it throws everything up and you got to relearn everything again. I thought that was a really cool way to use that, uh, to use that kind of game mechanic in a way that mimicked how the game, the video games work uh, extremely well. Yeah, all we needed was a child's choir to start singing at that new point. And we'd be like, yes, this is it. We've reached that moment. This is the experience we've been dreaming of. Yeah, it does an awesome job of emulating a game in that state, and it's, it is super fun. Uh, one note I'd have on the Dark Souls game, at in the boss fights in particular, like the rules get even more complicated. This is yeah. the only part where I felt like the rules really slowed us down. And where we kind of borked this fight is on the facing of the enemy. Yeah. Um, the boss, so he's always going to turn and face like the enemy that he's moving towards or attacking. Um, and then like on his attack arcs, he has four arcs forward, back, left, and right. Up on the card is always forward, and we oh, went up yeah. equals up. So that is one way that we kind of borked the rules. Got and it. playing through it a second time with a different mini boss last night, it's like, oh, well, this works a little bit different and a lot better than we thought that it did. Got it. Okay. So that's where we're trying to use it as like cardinal directions as opposed Correct. to how he was facing. Yep. So if like we if it showed movement up, we would move him 
like north on the board or up on the board when really he should be moving forward in the direction. It's like tank got controls. It, got it. Okay. He was such oh. a pain too because he was so big. There was no way to get away from yeah. him in that room. It was yeah. like tank controls. No wonder I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the boss fight with the gargoyle that we had last night, like he starts at the far end of the room. We start on the other end of the room and to try to get Phoenix into position to hit with her big two-handed sword she had to use three stamina to get to the backside where the weak spot was. Then she swings and she did a huge stack of damage, but then like we got wiped because all of her stamina was filled up. We used Estus after the first one and uh, some other elements of this game that I really like. I mentioned it earlier, but just the uh, way the game resets when you rested the bonfire, I thought it was just such a great way to not only encapsulate the video game or the source material element into it, but also to give you another way to grind out souls and to like go through those encounters because it... It's really fun replaying those encounters when you know where the dudes are coming from and you know how to game their attacks. Like, it is awesome jumping back in and being like, oh, well, you nearly killed me the first time, but now we're not even getting hit. It's great. And that's kind of something with the Souls games in general, right? Yeah. It is something that you... It's the, it's the, it's the dumb <laughs> fanboy thought process of get good, but there is something yeah. to it because the games teach you how to get better. We see that in, in Sekiro for sure. We see that in Bloodborne where you just keep improving the skill set in small ways and you go back to some of these early levels you couldn't get through and you just obliterate things. Well, it was really interesting to me in Sekiro when uh, the game just ended with an impossible-to-beat bullfight. It's like, oh, here's a random bull and it's game over. Huh, Tom, weird. Tom put everything he had and then some into this fight. Did you ever wind up actually getting past it or was that just the end for you? No, that was the end of the game. <laughs> oh, God. It was a weird point to end the story, I guess. There's going to be a sequel or something like really? post-bull. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the one thing about that too, because, like you said, a, like you said, Brian, a lot of it is kind of learning how enemies work, and the more you learn how they operate, the easier the game gets. I mean, blood the Bloodborne board game had a lot of that in there as well, but the problem with the Bloodborne board game is you would learn your lessons, but you wouldn't realize that you did things wrong until you're like four hours in. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we'd have to spend another three hours to replay this. Whereas with the Dark Souls board game, like we learned what we did wrong and we learned our lessons in like 30 minutes. And then we didn't re-rack. We just went back to the bonfire because we died and went back, approached it, approached it differently. And we were able to continue from there. And so I think one of the reasons why, from my point of view, and I think we'll all agree... Um, and they're two very different games and how they're trying to operate, but this feels like it's more approachable in that way as well and maybe easier to play um, because of that fact that you're not losing so much time to try to have to re-go through it again. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that because with Bloodborne, we got to the second portion of that game and we found out because we had played the first part in a certain way, which wasn't wrong, Yeah, we just hadn't played it in a way understanding that the objective was going to be very specific for the second piece. And because of that, yeah. we couldn't beat it. So unless we would have known that starting the first section of the game, yeah. it was a moot point. We were, we were destined to lose. Yeah, Which is fine yeah it's hard to describe that as fun but it's fine if it's going to be something if we're a regular gaming group and we're playing at a regular cadence yeah. and it's like oh well next week we'll come back we'll approach this in a better way yeah. and we'll see what happens down the road but like given the three of us we play one board game about every four months for the <laughs> podcast as this core little group here and it's like we can't do the bloodborne formula there like the dark souls was a much better fit it's like oh well something bad happened we learned from it we evolved and it didn't completely derail our play session it's like oh mm -hmm. well we don't have to completely restart great yeah so much i think shorter that's also really yeah much shorter timer like you said on like oh we are able to use what we learned at a much faster rate <laughs> yeah 
Exactly. One other thing that I wanted to list as one of my favorite elements of the game is just the variability in combat. We've touched on it. The bosses have behavior decks where you don't use all of their cards. So each time you fight a boss, it could be different attacks. It could be a different pattern of attacks. But each one of the individual rooms that you go to, like you draw an encounter card that's going to be that room for this session, but there is a thick stack of encounter cards. And each time you reset the tiles, each time you restart a game, you're going to draw different encounter cards. So literally each time you play Dark Souls, you're going to have some form of different experience there's maybe five different like level one type enemies and they come out of different groups and configurations uh but i don't know i really enjoyed the variability of this game not even throwing into what the weapons did like once you got that whip that kind of changed quite a bit how you were approaching things and that was a fun weapon to watch you use because you were poisoning things every hit weren't you yeah i got poisoned every hit and it also gave me another crucial dodge die yeah i think it was sweet yeah, Whip was fun. Strengths and weaknesses of Dark Souls, the board game. Burnsy, the co-op combat and positioning. Strength or weakness? Yeah, that's definitely a strength, as we were talking about before. And it made it fun to play together. And it was it was the type of thing where we could bounce things off of each other and then like, okay, I'm going to go here so that you can do this down the line and then keep thinking about that. And because the bosses or the, the enemies are always coming at you after every activation it made it important to be sort of thinking ahead and like, well, if I do this, then that would maybe open it up for you to go do this when you activate next. Um, and, and so I think it made it, I think that made it really fun to work together to try to figure out the solution. We also got to choose who they attacked. That was kind of nice too, because we're like, okay, we're going to have this person attack this player so that we can, A, if we need to protect person B, yeah. we can do so, or we can draw them into a different position so it was nice to be able to make some decisions on how we essentially kited some of these yeah. these enemies and building on that attack i'm relatively confident we did that mostly right but that was a big difference between three player game and two player game okay. and two player game like one player has aggro one player just activated when we were playing three players we were often spread out to a point so uh oftentimes they'll the monsters will attack whoever has the aggro token but if that person is out of their range they'll go to the next closest person we are often in a position where we're equidistant apart so we are able to oh. kind of push them in the directions that we wanted to a lot of the times got is it this is up to four player correct i'd be super interested to see with four players how this would go those rooms get really small really fast yeah they do for four players. <laughs> <laughs> especially with that stupid running axe dude brian combat overall strength or weakness in dark souls the board strength game. Strength, it was it was a lot of fun, and you really did have to think about how you want to attack. It's like, look, if I make this attack now, that's great that I, mean, I get to throw a bunch of dice, do a lot of damage, but am I putting myself in a vulnerable enough position where, like, defensively now, I am vulnerable? And a quick point of clarification, almost every weapon that you have in this game has multiple different attacks that you can do with different stamina costs for it. So, like, you could do, oftentimes, a basic attack that costs little to no stamina, but if you want to do your big, powerful attack, you are really risking that stamina, which could fill up your health bar quickly. Yeah, pretty quick, and that's what we were talking about when Feeny was using that, that spy hand or the two-handed sword. It was half of her gauge to use her big attack. So if anything connects with her, and that's not a character that could dodge, that's death. Like, that's real quick. Yeah, she did find an upgrade that took the stamina on her highest attack down one. That was a big help. Yeah, that was that was a great upgrade. After after we beat the mini boss, like we finally pulled our first two weapon upgrades. Nice. Yeah, it was I mean we could have used it for the mini boss. That would have made it a lot easier. <laughs> Burnsy, the uh loot, strength or weakness in Dark Souls the board game. Yeah, I, I feel like the loot was a weakness. Um there's so much different loot, so you have this stack that's like huge. And like at least 50 cards. Which is nice because you want to have a variation of loot that you can get. 
But the problem was, like, so for my character class, every time we found loot, it was like, okay, um, I can't really upgrade my character to use this because my faith doesn't go high enough or my intelligence doesn't go high enough. Another quick clarification, there's like 50 generic loot cards that anyone could draw at any time. Each character has a stack of five loot cards specific to their character that get added into the game. So if you're playing with the Herald, the Herald's five cards go in. I was the Assassin, my five cards go in. Brian's Warrior five cards go in. When Phoenix was playing as the Knight, her five cards went in. And then after you beat the mini-boss, you had five more advanced cards for each one of the characters that's playing, plus five random legendary cards as well. So it's a huge stack. In my experience, very difficult to get like the right loot at the right time. So yep. it's a lot of improvisation, which is kind of soulsy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it works. Um, and like I got one of my herald pieces like right before we went into the mini boss, which was helpful. It was hard because then I didn't get a chance to really figure out how to use it before <laughs> we fought the big bad. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I-, I wish there was maybe a little bit more. Because when you play through the video games, there are certain things that you find in certain places that are designed. And I would, I wish there was some sort of a mechanic in this where you received certain things um, at certain points so that that was going to be helpful. And maybe there is down the line. To a very small degree. I was just going to point out that when you beat the mini-boss, there's certain loot for each mini-boss that you instantly get. Like, if we beat the Titanite Demon, you get a Titanite Shard, and I forget what the other thing is. The Gargoyle gave the Tail Axe, um, and two other things, like a Halberd and one other Dedicated item. loot pools are nice sometimes, aren't they? Yeah. 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 And, and and making sure that it's split between the characters so that it's it's easier for everybody to find something that at least they can use. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> of well, course yeah. you did, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I really, I thought it was well balanced to begin with. Because <laughs> you were kitted out to the nines, and you were the you were the one that got to level up first too because of it. I might have been. I'm not joking. I might have been max level before Burns got even a single upgrade of any capacity. I'm pretty sure you were, or close to it. And then on top of that, we had a bunch of loot that we just didn't want that just sat in our inventory for. Yeah. So it would be nice if there was some sort of mitigation. I. I guess nice that you can't get all the loot in every playthrough, so every playthrough, again, is going to feel fresh. But, yeah. like, man, it would be nice to pull some of that sweet loot. Like, especially now for Phoenix and me in the second half of the game, like, we need, we just need the good stuff. Yeah. And, like, how we spent an entire stack of souls after beating the miniboss. Like, every soul we got from that was just buying new loot, hoping for the new and better stuff, and no luck. And it yeah. sucks, too, when you draw something that's good and there's nobody in the group that stats could possibly be kind of composed to be able to use it. Yeah. And it's just like, that would be great, but that goes in the junk pile. Yeah. Forever. Forever. Brian, the overall rule set and like the um, just amount of mental capacity it takes to get up and running, strength or weakness? I didn't really have to expend any mental capacity because I was told what to do. And when I showed up, it was already set up. So I'd say minimal. I'd say very easy, very quick. Um I mean, I sat down, and within five minutes, I was ready to play, so I give it an A+. Plus. Uh, my experience was slightly different. Now, I bought this game pre-owned. I had it turned sideways on my shelf, which I never do oh, for games. Whoops. Like I always have games sitting on their base, but like I'm running into a bit of a space crunch, so Dark Souls got turned on its side. 
Big mistake. Uh-huh. There are a thousand little decks of cards in this game. They all got mixed together. I didn't know what the hell they all did. Sometimes the iconography that you need to separate uh-huh. them into their appropriate stacks, like the different starting gear for each character, tiny little icon over a treasure chest. And so it took me hours to set up for the first play. It's tearing down from the first play, also not ideal. But setting up the second time when I played with Phoenix, it was a lot more streamlined. And just like knowing the game and knowing like how it works... Uh, that makes the setup teardown a lot easier. Burns, you're kind of in the middle. You knew the rules coming in. You had yeah. a good grasp of the rules, but I handled all of the setup. How was that rules and onboarding experience for yeah, you? Yeah, I think it well. It went well. There was a few times where we ran into some weird connections of rules that weren't super clear. Um, so we ran into that typical, let's search on board game geek. Let's flip through the manual like five times to see if we could find it. And eventually we figured out something that at least worked for that playthrough. Um, but I will say that the how to play videos by tabletop duo on uh, YouTube are really good. So if you're looking at getting into the game, I think uh, tabletop duo does a really, does a great job of explaining how everything works. There's still that like once you get it in front of you and start doing it, trying to like make it sense of it again but at least got the language ingrained in your head so that then like the wheels clicked faster um and so from that perspective i think it was good and compared to some of these other games that are like this um it was much more streamlined from a rules perspective than how some of them either explain how things work or just the systems that they have in play to track everything um, I think this um, was fantastic. And like the player mats, having the little divots in that everything slides into to to track everything, um, I, I think are great uh, and, and went a long way to making it easy to see where everything was on your sheet and to understand how everything was. The only thing that was a little bit convoluted was where your equipment that you're not using goes um and 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 some of that stuff was like maybe a little bit muddy and hard to understand just from looking at the player placard but uh, no, otherwise I, overall it was pretty good i thought it was perfect when i started setting up for this show i was taking stuff out i was looking at the rules i'm like this game is probably going to be a patreon party giveaway <laughs> i think that uh this was probably a mistake that i'm going to regret but it turns out i really really enjoyed the dark souls board game it was a blast and it's something that phoenix and i are going to play quite a bit brian your overall thoughts and takeaways on the dark souls board game i would play this one again and it just had a lot more variation than like say god of war which we once you kind of do yeah. that a couple times that's kind of set um horizon would be that way too a little yeah. bit once you kind of get it figured out there's really not a lot of variation this had a ton because again really depending on what items you get when that can drastically change how this game goes and it was i thought it was a ton of fun figuring out hey how do we do this as a group and that i'm really lucky the two players i was playing with are very good at communication and that just kind of makes it overall a lot better Mm -hmm. because then there's the other times where like you got that person that just wants to do cool stuff and they kill everyone and it's like please stop doing that oh i'm here to have fun that's (laughs) that's great glad you came I'm here to have fun too. And you know what else is fun? Top five lists. It's time now for the final Tom Awesome's Top Five Countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. For our top five today, I'm going to kick it over to Burns for the top five most fun worlds to explore. 
Yeah, so we're looking at the best exploration in video games. And the criteria or how I went to approaching this list was that I wanted to try to focus on, in the top five, only one game or one game from each like sort of genre or type of game in here because otherwise it's like well open world games because they're all about this huge expansive world those would be like the top five maybe so i wanted to try to break it down to only having like one like open world game and only having one like sandbox game and so that's how i approached making this list and i wanted to say off the bat one of the honorable mentions is elden ring just because we're going to talk about it um, and so I put that in honorable mention because it felt a little weird to put it into that, the list. Especially where it belongs at number one. Well, I, as I'm the greatest actually, game of all time. I'm actually going to say that I would still think, based on the way that I structured the list, it would not be um, there. But we'll talk about that in a moment. But my number five on the list, um, and this one is probably the most oddball out of, out of all of all of them, is Chrono Trigger. So the SNES RPG. Um, and the reason why I put this at number five and why I thought this was a great world to explore, um, other than a lot of those OG 90s, like turn-based RPGs, uh, Chrono Trigger didn't have combat in the open world. So when you're on the overworld map, you didn't run into combat like encounters or anything like that. Um, so some people would probably say, well, then you're not really exploring. You're not bumping into things and blah, blah, blah. The reason why I think Chrono Trigger is phenomenal, like exploration in a game is because when you go back to the world in different times, the way that the things are different, but it's still the same areas, I think is really fascinating and really cool. And I remember when I was going through that game, once I started hopping back and forth between the time periods a lot, it was like, oh, I'm going to go to this space and see who's there or what they're doing. And then there's even like very specific plot points where it's like, you go back to this space and then this is going to happen, which I think is really neat and really cool. Um, and is a way that sort of rewards you for going back to other spots that you've been at to get more lore or to like do the main things that you need to do in the game. I'm being vague because I know you're playing through it right now, so I don't want to ruin anything. Um, or while well, you've been slowly playing through it, so. I appreciate that. And I know Brian has a point that he want to make wants to make, but I want to jump in. It's interesting. I'm playing through Chrono Trigger not quite for the first time. I made it to the final boss once before, and I decided, well, I'm finally going to beat this thing, and I'm not. I'm not super into it this time through. Like, there's elements that I really like, but it doesn't have the same magic for me. And I think one of the things that is dragging me down is the time it takes to load on the Vita. Oh, yeah. Like, there's so much lag and like, I guess, PS5 and, like, solid-state hard drives and maybe ruin retro gaming for me uh -huh. for all time. I was never crazy about it to begin with, yeah. but, like, it is just untenable waiting for even the menu to yeah. load. Like, there's a three- to five-second pause. I'm like, oh, my God, I just want to equip this freaking sword and then keep running. And it's like... Those PlayStation ports of those RPGs, the load times to go into the menus, like Final Fantasy VI was really bad for it too. Um, all of those games, it's it's it, and it's all because of like the CD drive stuff. And then from a coding perspective, it's still there even if you're not playing it on a CD, which is just a bummer. Yeah. How far are you in? Uh, I just got the Epoch. Is that the time machine? Okay. Oh yeah. Yep. 
I was going to say, if you, and this is up to you, um, I have the DS version, and that's what I played it on like three summers ago. Oh, interesting. And it is infinitely faster. If you want to borrow it, I'm yeah. happy to let you borrow the DS and the game. So that's not too far into, no, and you can burn it, back through to yeah, get to that point. And, and yeah. it would just be a lot smoother, because there is no load times with it. It's just go, go, go. And it's the part that's super interesting is for a game that had such great exploration, how long do you think it took me to beat that game? No guide, just going through. Probably like, not. Probably not long. I'm. I'm guessing you were maybe at twenty hours. Seventeen. Yeah. And it's funny because we look yep. back at some of these RPGs, like, oh, yep. it was so big, and there's this huge world. It yep. took forever. Seventeen hours. It's yeah. like, holy crap, I'm done. It was like, <laughs> well, it's like those older games too. Um, like Final Fantasy VI. There's so much that happens in the first five hours of that game, and it's like you're just bum 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 bum. And I think I feel like that's something with like RPGs these days that they've kind of fallen away from is like they spend all this time on like world building and, and, and tutorialization that like the beginning parts of a game can feel like a slog sometimes. And it's not even limited to RPGs. Like I just re-listened to our God of War episode. I went 20 hours in that game between Odin encounters, 20 hours. And like, you could argue that stuff did happen, Uh but like the big, the big like tentpole things were awfully far spread apart in that triple A action game. So, yeah, so that was number five, Chrono Trigger. Like I said, that's maybe a bit of an oddball there, but I really wanted to put that into that the top five. That's a good choice, though. I like you're, you're, you're doing it on different merits because it's yes. not all one. It's not just about the size of the, of the, the gameplay. Exactly. Right? That's not just that. what exploration is. It's about the experiences that you have while going through it as well and how fun it is to um, uncover things in the world and to revisit the world. Um, so number four is going to be a weird one. Because I have never touched the game. It is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Um, and nice. the reason why I put that in there, here's the thought process that went behind this. Boo! <laughs> here's the thought process that went behind this. So I'm looking for like open world games, right? And Breath of the Wild does have a very expansive open world where you can find things in it, right? Um, if I think about Elden Ring... That's probably a step up from what Breath of the Wild was, in my mind. They're, it's a step up from everything. They're fairly similar types of games in that sense. Tears of the Kingdom, with the addition of the Ascend feature and some of the other features, just from hearing people talk about that, and like I'm like people I know, um, people on podcasts, all this stuff, I feel like that adds so much more to the exploration that it is probably the best version of that game and the verticality that you can have between going from these islands in the sky all the way down to these dungeons underneath the earth and how quickly you can get back and forth between those is why I feel like Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, even though I haven't even played it and I've only seen big dick robots that people have built out of the, <laughs> the machine. God gamers. There, you know, and that's a level of exploration too. What can I put together? Um, and so it's number four because I've never played the game and I don't feel comfortable putting it ahead of other things that I have played. So that's why I have Zelda Tears of the Kingdom as number four on the list. As someone who's played about 40 hours, I would say there's probably nothing that Breath of the Wild does that is better than Tears of the Kingdom. I think Tears of the Kingdom improved quite a bit in each area and you made a super good point sometimes it's about what can we do in that world yeah um because that i mean that's just it's essentially a big weird physics engine that's how it works so i love that pick so yeah that's number four zelda tears of the kingdom number three and this one i went back and forth so much i knew what type of game i wanted to put in this slot but i couldn't decide um 
but I ended up going with No Man's Sky. Um, huge, procedurally generated world. Every our universe, galaxy, every planet you go to is something different. Some of them are just garbage planets. Some of them have weird wildlife on them. And, and especially when I played the game, which was very early on, and it's so much better now with the things that you can do within the game. Um, but there was so much that you could do in there to... Um, to like find all these different types of plant, uh, different plant life, different animal life. Um, and they'll be different on other planets based upon the types of oxygen. You start to find out that the different minerals that you need are on these different planets and you can kind of go back and forth between them. And now with being able to build bases and find different like cultures on the game, it's just this huge expansive, um, you know, universe that you can explore and, and that fun is always there. Sometimes you'll jump, you'll jump to a planet and all of a sudden there's a space battle happening there and you're like, what in the world's going on with this? So it's just like, there's always something new kind of around every corner. And sometimes it's not anything super interesting, but even if it's like this barren planet, that's still kind of interesting because you weren't really expecting that. Um, and so that's why I put No Man's Sky as number three on best exploration in games. It makes it sound like the world's alive, right? Is that kind yes. of the idea? But that... just like the galaxy is alive. Mm-hmm. You want the galaxy to be alive? You should play the game with Casey and have him park his base right next to you. Yeah, I'll always have a uh, an affinity for No Man's Sky because that is the first Game Pass Forever game that I played with another player, and that's when the show took a bit of a leap forward. And uh, you know. Casey and I love to troll each other, but he got me pretty good when he used his terraforming tool to write F.U. Tom in Planet. <laughs> nice. That's a very Tom move. Yeah. How'd that feel? Uh, it hurt. It hurt my feelings. <laughs> I, Tom uh, just goes, I've been doing this to these to other people all these years. <laughs> I need to change my ways. So number two, I put, um, and I nobody's going to agree with me, but I put The Outer Wilds. I honestly, I'm surprised this wasn't your number one, but I'm intrigued to hear why it's number two for yeah. you. So Outer Wilds is phenomenal. And, you know, I, I disagree did, wholeheartedly. I did go back and forth on this, but it's a game that's all about exploration. And it's not only that you're exploring just to see what's all out there, because um, basically what it is, is you start off on a planet, you go into a rocket ship and you can go to these other different planets that are in your solar system. And you're basically uncovering the mysteries of your planet the entire solar system and what's going on here. And you're trying to prevent basically your sun going supernova and wiping out everything and then resetting everything. Cause you're in this time loop. Um, and the amount of the reason why this is a top tier exploration in my mind is because of the interconnectedness of what you're finding in all the different places and how that helps to answer puzzles that you're trying to solve elsewhere and really any single spot that you go to you're going to be able to find something that you can dig into that you can try to understand the history behind it um uh, why it's there and how that fits into the big picture of everything and i think that is what is amazing uh, uh, about the outer wilds whether you like the actual gameplay of it or not is this mist we're talking about or is this some is this something I, i'm unaware it's it's slightly it's, better <laughs> it's, it's 3d but it is similar to mist in that there's no combat in the game very cool you're like you're just trying to puzzle together and try to trying to figure everything out in the 22 minutes that you have before the loop starts again interesting it's so funny that i never ran out of time on the timer brian just picture like the entire galaxy is a scratch off and like you're like all right i jump in my ship i fly over here and like oh what's happening here 
okay, how does this connect over here? And then fly your ship over here and scratch this off, scratch this off. And it's just this huge interconnected puzzle. Bernsey, how do all the tickets are losers? All the tickets are losers no. because the game sucks no. and Burns is wrong. No, no, that's so great. But anyway, go ahead, Tom. How uh, how did you keep your thoughts straight in that game? It's been a long time since we uh, discussed it on the podcast for Game Pass Forever. I know it was one of your favorite games, uh, certainly of the last couple of years. How did you keep everything straight? Was it the in-game journal? Did you like yeah. have to handwrite notes? Or, like, how did you? No, I didn't. I didn't handwrite anything. It, the ship's log is great for tracking that. There's two different ways that you can look at it. So there's one way that just sort of lists off, these are all the mysteries that you found. And then it'll have question marks on things that you haven't quite uncovered yet. And then it'll show the other pieces that you have and how they kind of connect together. And then there's another way that you can look at it, which shows the solar system and all the planets. And it'll kind of tell you, these are the things that you've uncovered. These are like the things that you need to find more out about on the different planets. And it helps to sort of guide you in that direction. But even with that, um, some of the random things that I found in that game that were like the pinnacle of exploration in games in my mind was like, you just land somewhere and it's like, okay, there's gotta be something to this, right? Like this comet wouldn't be here for no reason. And then like, you know, something happens and you're like, Oh wow, I can do this. And then you keep going deeper and it's like, Holy crap, what's this? And then you're like, Oh, I can't. And it's just like, it's this, these layers of the onion that are pulling together and the way that that kind of clicks is just so, so amazing in this game, but it did end up at number two. Number two. I'm very surprised. I can't wait to hear what is number one. Quick recap of your list burns. It was Chrono Trigger. as number five. Yep. Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Number four, No Man's Sky. Number three. And then the Outer Wilds. Number two. Um, and then honorable mentions I have Elden Ring uh, for the discussion that we had at the start um, Witcher 3 nerds are going to revolt over that one <laughs> Witcher 3 is in there um, similar types of games AC Origins slash Odyssey Persona 5 Red Dead Redemption all of those in the Horizon series all of those like checklisty open worlds um, don't quite get there but there's lots of fun things to explore and find in those games and I also put God of War and God of War Ragnarok in there because I think going around in the boat and like the discussions you're having as you're finding the different things is super cool in that game but none of those kind of quite made it into the top five um so tom you haven't seen this list yet i have not this is all completely new to me and i'm definitely not a guess of what you think number one is then what could possibly unseat um the outer wilds do you think what could possibly unseat the outer wilds well i'm seeing a theme where you like parts of the world or parts of the experience that layer onto each other like you touch a and then later on a turns into b or like there's an interconnectedness i can't i can't think of a great example i honestly thought that uh the outer wilds would have been your number one uh what's missing from this list that you think should be in like if we're talking about the top exploration experiences what do you think is missing that should be talked about is it a giant bale of hay no Oh man, I thought maybe I'd have it with Divinity Original Sin and the giant bale of hay that you want to oh, drag everywhere. Oh no, it is not. It is not. Um, the answer is the Elder Scrolls Oblivion and Skyrim. Interesting. Um, and so I think Elder Scrolls games, and I've only really played Oblivion and Skyrim, and I've never beat either of them, but they toe the line between purposely designed areas, but then procedurally generated pieces of that 
um, that make it super interesting. And um, I remember when like when Oblivion first came out, like reading like video game uh, like magazines talking about it and how cool it is that you can be talking about the same game because you went to this place and this is where the quest took you and you're talking about that. But then you went into this cave and it's completely different than what somebody else found in that same area. I think that is a really cool area. And none of the other Bethesda Softworks games have gotten to the level that like Oblivion and Skyrim did with just the huge open world that you can explore out in the open. But then when you go underneath the surface, it's something that's going to be specific to like what you're experiencing and other people probably aren't going to experience that in the same spot. They might not even experience the same exact like constellation of things that are happening underneath there. And that's why I feel like the elder scrolls oblivion and Skyrim. And I put them both in there cause I actually played oblivion more. Um, but they both do similar things. I think Skyrim is more popular with people because it was more recently came out and that's kind of where the game sort of exploded into mainstream, uh, appeal. Um, but I kind of put them both on equal footing for having really fun worlds to explore. It's interesting given your uh, reverence for the Elder Scrolls games and your interest in MMOs that you've never played Elder Scrolls Online. That is true. Um, part Which is of that's, on Game Pass and currently free on Epic Game Store. Yeah. Part of that is because I play Final Fantasy XIV as an MMO. Um, and jumping into another MMO um, feels like it would just be a lot, even though I have compulsions that pull me in all those directions all the time. Um, but from what I've also heard is that, I don't know, there's there's differences to that from an MMO that doesn't make it as interesting or fun to play um, as like the actual bespoke like Elder Scrolls experience that are built specifically as a world um, well, I'm going to pay Casey to put it on Game Pass forever, and then you're going to have to play that well, someday. Well, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to do yeah. that. I have, I've beaten both, and I think I like Oblivion more just because there was less icons on the screen. Uh-huh. You do feel like it's a little bit more natural of finding something. Because in Skyrim, if you're just close close enough to a cave opening, here's the cave. We're going to uh-huh. put the icon right on your compass. Um, and I'm... Uh, I've got a couple of patients of mine that are older gamers, and they talk about Morrowind. And to be honest, if there's uh-huh. any kind of update to the user interface for Morrowind, I would try it. Because they're like, hey, you could find out more information if you go to a town west of this mm-hmm. area. And it makes it a lot more vague. Like, you're the one that's actively unraveling it. And it doesn't hold your hand for it. Yeah. And I think there's a place for that. Yep. Yeah. And they're really good at making those games like that. Um, which is, I think, why so many people, even though the, the game is ages away, why so many people are frothing at the mouth for Elder Scrolls Six. Like, any information. It's the reason why Bethesda just sh- showed, like, a 10-second, like, Elder Scrolls Six is coming, but after we finish Starfield, so it's going to be a long time. What are we at, a decade now? When was when Skyrim? 2010? It was uh, 2011. 11-11-11 is oh when Skyrim came out. Oh, my God. When you, think, when you think about that, too, they're probably just, just... It's just the dialogue that's probably holding yeah. them up at this point. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> the amount between Oblivion and Skyrim was just nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, Oblivion, like, was my favorite moment... My favorite moment in any of those games is the first time you go through a lift... A rift into, like, the... Chaos World, Dark World, I the can't demon what, area, the demon yeah. area, and I was just like, "Holy wow!" <laughs> and it was just like, "Okay, that's that's cool." I, I like, I knew they talked about these things, but I didn't know like it was going to be this full fledged. And then, and then it's like sort of white knuckle. It's like, "Okay, I gotta get through this. I gotta get out," you know, kind of thing. Um, so I think 
I think they do some really great things in that series, and so that's why I think it should be number one. It was tough between that and Outer Wilds, but I know Outer, Outer Wilds is a little bit more niche, um, whereas uh, Elder Scrolls is a lot more kind of widely known and things that things that lots of people have enjoyed as as opposed to a few people enjoying an indie game. So. I think I think you defended your pick extremely well. Like that was pretty well thought out, and I I was I assume Tommy you were going to guess that. Um, yeah, because no. it was that's a pretty big one that you put up with the the crown jewel of it. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, um, and I I didn't even think about divinity for that. I feel it's like it just we haven't played enough. We're like eighteen game. hours in. I know, but it's just like there's so much more of the world to explore. Um, I would love to make more time to get back into divinity. That was that a great sucks. co-op it's experience. Been with my brother Joey, it sucked. <laughs> It's not built to play on console. It was clunky. It was ugly. The story was bad. You excited for uh, Baldur's Gate three then? I actually am. Okay. Uh, I've got uh, one of my uh, one of my patients uh, was telling me that he's put three hundred or four hundred hours into the beta at this point. And at one point he's like, you know, I'm messing around and I poisoned something in a camp. And there's this cutscene of all of these creatures dying from the poison I put in their drinking well. And he's like, I've put 300 hours into this, and this is the first time that I've seen this. And he's like, I know there's more stuff like this hidden, and it is awesome. <laughs> yeah, my expectations for Baldur's Gate three are tempered. Brian, any uh, honorable mentions or things that you would want to put on a list of top exploration in games? I mean, I probably would put Metal Gear Solid five in there, but I can I'd... also see the the failures of it because it sometimes it is pretty empty. And I remember you and me talking about that on the second or third episode of Outsiders three. Overrated. We did uh, we did Metal Gear Solid, and are. I just remember you talking about how empty the world felt at times. It did, and that's how I think that's a, a fair, you know, a uh, fair criticism of Breath of the Wild too, because mm-hmm. there's times where it is just kind of empty, and like it's it's great that we can create these giant wide open spaces that are kind of taking over the gaming landscape, but if there isn't interesting things to look at or interact with or ponder, what's the point of all that space? You're just slowing me down from going A to B with nothing interesting along the way. And you skip cutscenes. Sometimes. Yeah. I, <laughs> you guys will be very proud of me for Final Fantasy 15 or 16. 16 is what we're on. Oh, I've been playing 15 for all these hours. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I, have, I have watched every one of those cutscenes. <laughs> I am putting in the work. Oh, man. I can't wait to dive deeper on that. A couple of games that I thought of off the fly tomb raider i thought the original yeah. not the original oh, yeah. tomb raider but like the first remake when they kind of rebranded tomb raider i thought the exploration of that was really interesting there were a bunch of like nooks and crannies to explore and interesting lore to uncover i think even the original tomb raider like finding the t-rex for the first time you're just like what the world like, so there are some moments in there for that locking um, the butler in the cooler god <laughs> just the that. sucker lock him in there he can't get out or I suppose Uncharted for that sake too. Uncharted is a game based on exploration. It wants you to feel like an Indiana Jones. The only thing is that those environments are very like linear. enclosed. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how very I felt linear. though about outside of the sand area in God of War Ragnarok. A lot of that other stuff in God of War was pretty linear. I could see that. Yeah, I you guess. could choose what area of the lake you wanted to row, out to, row over to, but it was always a corridor. It was never a wide open area yeah. until we got to the crater. Well, because it's not a true open world game it's Mm-mm. more of like a zones that you go between um so yeah what else control control had a cool I world haven't to played explore it yet, so that's one of those things that maybe would jump up 
jump up here once I would get a chance to jump into it. Yeah, you're basically in uh, Doctor Strange's office building, just constantly uh-huh. shifting and weird stuff happening all the time. I really thought that Control was a great game to wander around and touch all the stuff. And Disco Elysium, which I have just started playing on the Steam Deck, like a combat-free RPG. Like All you're doing is exploring the world and talking to people and solving little things. Yeah, that's I mean, I've only scratched the surface in that game, but that is also a, a, neat, a neat concept of that. Yeah, the uh, the core takeaway here is games are fun, games unless they're fun. old, according to Tom. Yeah, old games suck and should be pushed time, into the lava. Out, real quick, then and it will make this super short. You're playing an old game in Chrono Trigger, mm-hmm. and I don't like it. Okay, good. You're consistent. Okay, <laughs> you're consistent. No, uh, oh god, what old thing did I just start? I just uh, I bought a bunch of stuff on uh, GOG on their summer sale, and I was playing something old. I'm like, oh, I should make note of this really old thing that I'm playing. Like Ultima, because I know you bought Ultima. Bought Ultima. I haven't started playing Heroes Ultima yet. Oh, it's the original Warcraft. The original oh, Warcraft. What? Orcs and humans. Original yeah. Original Warcraft is rough. I yeah, it's a little clunky, one. but There's I'm like some cool stuff in it. Warcraft two. Everybody is that's, phenomenal. That's, yeah. yeah, that was one of the first video games that I fell in love with. But I'm like, oh, I'm playing the original Warcraft. I should mention this on Discord, and then I never did. So I play crappy old stuff. It's fine. Like I want to see history too. Brian, you want to take us into the read? Nope. Did you do it or no? The read for Premier Health? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. You should read the text messages that I send to you. <laughs> I do. That's right. I told you that I didn't want to do it. Oh, I don't remember you saying that. Yeah, you didn't want I to said do it. nope. Huh. Did he say nope? Do you remember him saying no? Four letters. Should we go back to the tape? Go back to the tape. I couldn't scroll back. (laughs) I wanted to read. I said nope. Oh, all right. Burns, you want to do the read off the cuff? Sure. I never want to do the read for my own company. It's just weird. You did it once. Didn't like Mm -hmm. it. It's like kissing your sister. You know, all the parts are there, but it's not fun. Yeah, you never said nope. I definitely said nope in my mind. All right. <laughs> Super helpful. Yeah, Truly. he tried to send you a telepathetic note, but it didn't get there. Telepathetic? Telepathetic note. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think we put the wrong emphasis on the level again. No, it didn't get there, so it was telepathetic. I said it intentionally. Well, Brian, check out Premier Health. They have solutions for <laughs> back pain, neck pain, car accident, telepathetic notes, and more. We suggesting Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. That might be the best reason that we have done as a group. Would that be acceptable, or do you want us to That's do a real one? That's fine. That's fine. Definitely shows much more the relationship we have. <laughs> Shut up. You said no, I didn't. <laughs> you. Welcome to before we get into Elden Ring, we have one more micro segment to do. We're going to do one of my favorite things, and hopefully it goes better than God of War Ragnarok. We're going to play Two Truths and a Lie. Brian, I'm going to kick it over to you here to explain what this game is and to lead us through this experience. Very cool. So, how this works, um, we're playing a game that, uh, like Tom said, it's called Two Truths and a Lie. And what we're doing here is we are going to be reading over five statements. The five statements are going to... Um, well, there's going to be five stanzas five, of three five statements. questions, there we go, are, are divided into three uh, statements. And within each of the three statements, there's going to be two of the statements will be correct. One is Two will be truths, be... one will be a lie. And Burns and I have to guess what the lie is. Did I just simplify that for you? Are I we okay? We get next, do you want to just do it next time? Yeah, we'll no, it just... Offering? Is that what you want to do? <laughs> no, I don't I'm think so. I'm having a great time. It sounds like <laughs> it. I'm yeah. having truth right now. Let's have some truth. <laughs> so... Um, as Tom kind of explained, so never interrupt Ryan. He gets very touchy. I need to try to see if I can trick some of these guys. One um, more interruption, and I'm getting the Logan technique. Oh God! 
You and Casey, man. <laughs> I've never slept better, dude. <sighs> well, Casey's never cried harder. So, what we're going to do is we're going to start off with the first uh, section of three. So, this is question one. Um, and then, who's going to be our scorekeeper here? You guys, are you guys going to just track yourselves? We're going to track it. I mean, yeah. it should be easy to keep track of. Okay, so remember, you are all on individual teams. It's not users versus the system. It's you guys versus each other. It's not raging against the machine? No. But their tickets are expensive, and yeah. if you want to go, I'll go with you. More or less than Blink. Well, I don't know, like Blink. Because there I, ain't nothing happening, or nothing punk rock about what happened with Blink in I the Twin at, Cities. Super short. I looked at two tickets on the floor. They were going to run 333 a seat, which I wouldn't pay in the first place. And then with the dynamic ticket pricing, they came to 914 total, $140 per ticket in fees. That's a truth. That is a truth. <laughs> okay. that is a truth. I'm, on, I'm on fire. I'm ready. That's the truth. That's bull. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. You're going to be censoring all sorts of stuff. I'm going to be better. I promise. He, he'll take care of it. All right. Here we go. We're going to start off with we've got uh, we got statements number one. So here we go. Um, one of the original purposes of the Erd Tree in Elden Ring was to resurrect the dead. Statement number two, Jar George R.R. R. Martin denies he used the first letter of his initials to inspire the many G, R, and M starting names in Elden Ring. And number three, the Black Knight Calvary was, were unused enemies originally found in Dark Souls 3. And if you guys need repeats, always ask. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of stuff borrowed from um, previous Souls games, so I'm inclined to think that the last one is true. Yeah. Um, so the thing about the second one, I would, I would guess that it is true that he didn't name all these things G or R or M just because he was like, just on like this lore building, like overall world sort of development. And I'm guessing that he didn't like have like the final say over what the character names are. And if people did do it, they probably did it as an homage to him as opposed to that. The only thing that would see this is something that you're trying to trip us up with is that he maybe never actually publicly said anything about it. Tom's played, or Tom, Joe's played this game before. So <laughs> he's looking. And to be honest, the Erd Tree is the big glowing thing that you see in mm -hmm. Elden Ring. And you get the seeds and it uh, powers up your flask. Got it. Okay. Um... That's a major component. I'm worried how far you got into this game. I, I, I made it farther than you did in Tales of the Borderlands. Oh! Well, you hit start. Yes, you did. <laughs> but uh, but I did not make it supremely far. So um, You got a trophy, that's something. Did I get a trophy? I assume you did. I'm sure you did. Yeah. You, you had to walk out into the open area, right? Okay, was that's, that a trophy? I, I guess I so. could look at it. Yeah, I think so. Um... So yeah, that's where I'm sitting at on these two. I, I don't. I think I, I agree with you that the third one probably is true. Um, so read the first two again, please, Bur Brian, not Burns. Okay. So the first one was one of the original purposes of the Erd Tree in Elden Ring was to resurrect the dead. And then two's the mouthful. George R. R. Martin denies he used the first letter of his initials to inspire the many G, R, and M starting names in Elden Ring. I'm going to go with number two is the lie. Joe? Um, just because I don't know enough about the first one, <laughs> I'm going to go with number two is the lie as well. Uh, number three was the lie. The Black Knight oh. Cavalry were unused enemies originally found in Dark Souls 3. They were not. They were originals to this game. Um, 
the R.R. Martin thing was actually a rumor for a while, so he did have to address it. Okay. Because it's kind of absurd how many names sound similar. Margit, Margot, Margot, like... And yeah, they went full Tolkien on it. It was great. super <laughs> confusing at times who we're talking about. And even some of the characters look alike. So it's it's a little confusing. That The one thing I did find out that was interesting about the Black Knight Cavalry, they initially... Uh, have you guys encountered them in game at all? Where yeah, are they at? Definitely. They, there's, there's specific spots that they are. Um, they're, they're like over next to a bridge or off a certain road. There's uh, one uh, that only appears at nighttime outside of the Rhea Lucaria. They Lucar. all only approach nighttime. Okay, yeah. yeah. I've, I fought one outside of the Rhea Lucaria. Oh, yeah. And Did they, you kill him? No. They okay. they are they can be very fast and very dangerous, but the thing was is initially in the game they wanted them just to be roving randomly across the regions so that you could encounter them anywhere. Awesome. That um, sounds miserable. It it was. And then they're like they, there was too many issues with them. They couldn't control their AI attacking things. <laughs> <laughs> so what they did was they're like, no, you're by a bridge, uh, you're by this tower. Yeah. Um, so there's that. They're so, basically the Skynet of Elden Ring. And that's, they lost that's control. Pretty of the device, <laughs> so. um, and then one of the original purposes of the Ur Tree uh, was to resurrect the dead. So if you guys have gone into any of the catacombs or tombs, which we had talked about a little bit, um, even in the show notes, um, when you're in those base rooms and you can see the roots with all the dead bodies stuffed into the roots, those are the people that they were hoping to bring back. Ah, okay. But the Ur Tree uh, had been. And at this point now, um, kind of infected by Godfrey, so it lost its ability to do hmm. so. Interesting. Yeah. All so, right. So, so we need zero. Th- we need three out of five to win. We're zero for one. Yeah. And unfortunately, I had turned the screen towards Joe, and I actually highlight the lie in red. So thank God he didn't look over and just go, "Oh, that third one's a whole different color." No, yeah. I purposely slid over. Burns so is a good a sport. Good guy. Yeah. I would have cheated. Tom would have cheated oh, the yeah. crap yeah. out of that. You didn't yeah. see the mirror back there. Yeah. Oh god. Damn it. <laughs> There's a naked chicken body paint too. Well, she's not naked then if it's body paint. Yeah, true. That's yeah. I guess that kind of hits the minimal amount of clothing. <laughs> um, so statement number two: uh, the map of the lands between. So this is the continent that uh, Elden Ring takes place in. Is roughly the shape of a tarnished, furled finger. Okay. Hmm. Um, I always got like crescent roll out of it. Statement number two. (laughs) Godfrey was Queen Marika's first consort consort, and thus the first Elden Lord of the Lands Between. He had earned this honor by killing Horalu, the chieftain of the Badlands and a bloodthirsty warrior. I'm glad that you threw a lore question in there for Burns. Question number three. Unlock. Statement number three. The map of the land between um, is roughly the tarnished furled finger. I'm trying to help you guys on this one. Which one's the lie, guys? I made one 50-50 for the first time. <laughs> it's not 50-50, though. It essentially is. You got either... Well, I guess... Oh, because the first one and the third one are the opposite of each other. No, they're the exact same, Joe. Oh, well, then you you gave it to us. Yeah. Which is it? The middle <laughs> one is the lie. Because it's one of the similar-sounding names. Uh, I have it in the notes here somewhere. It was uh, You said Godfrey, and it's Godric mm-hmm. to Crafton. Nope. Is that right? Uh-uh. No, Godfrey's another character. This is when we were talking about how many start with the same letter and have mm-hmm. the same kind of sound. Yes. I actually thought I was going to try to confuse you guys on this one, but then I realized no. my own problem here. So Yeah. yeah. All right. So one, I, one. I, I honestly don't know if we won or lost that one. You won. We got All a point right. because there was only there was no we, way to do it. There was only one lie. That the other two were the same one. They had to be true. Here's here's the confusing part on the lie that I made. Godfrey was Queen Marika's first consort and thus the first Elden Ring Lord of the Lands between. His prior name was also Horalu, so it's actually the same person. So they gave this person, r- random person, 
two separate names. And there's some people in the game that have yeah, three full separate Tolkien. names. Yeah, It's so confusing. It's the Silmarillion, yeah. the game. And you had the Silmarillion experience, and I had the Timeless Classic that Pat was talking about. Um, and what I had meant to do here was actually the third question was supposed to be the shape of the tarnished land was supposed to look like a prawn. So <laughs> they both look like the same thing. Tom said Preston, like you guys had already gotten it. All right. So let's move to three. You guys are now tied with me. The map of the lands between is roughly the shape of a tarnished furled finger. Wait. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like that one is true. The rivers of Blood Katana can also be found in Sekiro, another um, from soft title. I needed that. Yeah. And the last one is fire does less damage if it's raining and lightning does more. I feel like the last one is true because there's a lot of little um, uh, synchronicities that aren't well explained, which is why you hate this game with the burning fiery passion. Uh, so I think uh, I'm inclined to say that number two is the lie. Well, I, I know number one is true. Um, so I guess I'm going to go with number two then. You're right. Yes. And the problem is, is that this is apparently the first version that I wrote. So that's why there's two of them with the same things in it. Oh, no. Yes. I'm checking the rest and the rest is correct. But I was just like, as I was reading it, I'm like, well, I'm boned. So well, I got to put some work in here. Yeah, there's two left. If Burns and I get one of them, if we each get one of them right, uh, we're going to be the winners. Because Brian's a big f- Dumb. But we're oh, playing against, a swear word again. We're Sorry, against each other, though, too. Like, we're trying to have more than the other, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So here okay. we go to four. My God, this is going so poorly. Mounting Torrent gives you invincibility frames, letting you dodge attacks when used appropriately. Number two is Sacred Tears can only be found in churches. And statement number three is the Beast Repellent Torch was inspired by the world of Bloodborne. Ooh... Ooh, well, I know one of them is absolutely true, so I'm torn between two of them. I'm going to go with number two is the lie. I am going with Burns because I feel like I found sacred tears outside of churches. I'm not 100% certain, but it just feels like too narrow a box. And I know number one is true. Um, so you were right about number one. Okay. Yep, you can use torrent if you're being attacked to get invincibility frames in a pinch. Um, sacred tears can only be found in churches. Okay. Oh, interesting. So do you, they're the only places you can find the seeds underneath the trees, and that might be what you're thinking of. But the uh, the tears can only be found in churches. And the cool thing about that is you can see churches on the map. You can see like the the squares of where they're at, so you can go actually find them without knowing that you know just looking and reading a map. So the beast repellent torch was inspired by the world of Bloodborne is not accurate. Um, it the fact that the word beast is involved, I think, can probably drew you guys away from it a little bit because the world is of beasts when it comes to Bloodborne. Um, but nope, that's that was uh, the lie. So, I only went with that one because I thought I also thought I found a sacred tear outside of a church, but I must have found it in a church. Mm-hmm. So the the last the last set of free. So actually this one is pretty important for everybody involved. So either I emerge a champion or one of these guys winds up telling me I suck. And so far my formatting sucks. So I'm still very disappointed <laughs> in myself. All right. Statement number one, um, the creators of Elden Ring are deeply inspired by a lot of the modern RPGs for, uh, J- Japan, both current and past, particularly final fantasy, which is why the mighty great sword bears such a resemblance to the buster sword. Um, statement number two, Fia, the woman who was famous for asking you to hug, had a rendered G-string that was never used in the final version. <laughs> and the final statement, from the first time you met Gostuck in Stormvale, he will follow you around, and every time you die within the castle, he steals 30% of your runes. 
I feel like number three is alive because I went through Stormvale. I don't remember that character and I don't remember anyone stealing runes when I die. So I'm going with number three. I mean, I went through Stormvale. And no, you so didn't. I remember specifically that guy coming around with me, but I never died. So I didn't have to oh, worry about my oh, runes. Too good. Lost, too so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got too good. Um, I'm actually going to say. I'm actually going to say that the Final Fantasy one is a lie. Because I do not think that they would pull inspiration from that. I would think it would be other RPGs instead. Final answers? Final yep. answer. Joe got it. Yes! Oh! So, um, they actually, the, the great, the mighty greatsword is actually uh, modeled after Guts's sword from Berserk. Berserk. That That's where it comes from because they are deeply inspired by that manga. Yeah. Uh, Thea, the woman who was famous for asking you to hug, did actually have a rendered G-string, which they named. It was called, like, Small Lands or something. It was ridiculous. But they decided not to have it in the final version. But you can find it online, so if you're interested, look it up. Like, I did, How was it, Brian? Yeah. Oh, I'm you sure it was it looked, accidentally. It looked dirty. It looked well, like something that would probably have a little bit of an aroma to it and yeah. not a good one. And if you sign up for Fia's OnlyFans, you could probably buy that G-string from her used, too. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> We need a we need a plague, people. <laughs> we need one. Isn't that what OnlyFans is? I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> From the first time you met Gostok, yes, he will follow you around Storm uh, Stormvale. Gostok was the one with like that big square necklace. If you remember, it's like oh yeah, yeah, yeah he's right die. in the like first room. Yep. And what he'll do is, if you die, anytime that you die, oh, he will take your thirty of the runes. And later on, after uh, you fight Godfrey the Grafted. Or is it not Godfrey? Is it Godfrey? Uh, I can't remember. Godric, thank yeah. you, the grafted. There we go, because Godfrey is actually Horlu. Um, Glad I could help you keep track of when that. You, <laughs> when you kill him, um, you get all your runes back. Oh, that's why he was waiting at the end. It's like, yeah. oh, all right. Yep. Yeah, I didn't notice that he was stealing runes. I would have been really, really mad about that. Yeah, the mo I didn't know how far you guys got in the game, but like, uh, I didn't know if you were going to get to Radagon, which is the end of the game. But Radagon is actually uh, the marriage partner of one of the characters, but both characters are in Radagon's body. That's how confusing the lore gets <laughs> later in the game, and there's no understanding of why this is the case. But I like that was like so late in the game, I'm like, I don't think this is even worth asking because it's just going to be a blind guess. That's George Railroad Martin for you. So even with Tom giving getting a freebie on the second question and essentially a freebie on the third, mm -hmm. he still was short of the finish line. I just mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. experienced and understood much more of Elden Ring than Tom. So, <laughs> Or Japanese culture. Uh, do we want to poke on your love of the term JRPG burns? I mean... It's your favorite way to classify games, right? JRPG no, versus No, I think the classifications of all versus... RPGs are stupid, so... Mm -hmm. We've mm -hmm. talked about that on other podcasts, but yeah. Yeah, yeah like, no, I was just deflecting so that you'd feel bad instead calling, of me. Calling, because basically you would say then, since I would say that Final Fantasy sixteen is classified as an action RPG, and then um, Diablo four is an action RPG, yes, those are two very similar games in the same genre, of course. Yep, yep, absolutely same Zeus. Yeah. Speaking of action RPGs, we close our discussion with 2022's Game of the Year, Elden Ring. First thing, how much stock do you guys put into the Game Awards? Almost none, um, just because I think they a lot of the times they put things in categories that honestly just shouldn't. This game was like put action in, RPG. Uh huh. There you go. Or they put they put this game in as best story, and I'm like, are you are you joking me? So the Game Awards are just another form of commercials to me. Yep. Um, 
But I think that if everybody, if, if there was a, an, actual, an actual vote and this did come down to game of the year, I think it has earned it in every sense uh, of the, the word. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because the game awards themselves get watched by a lot of people. And it is mostly because of the trailer reveals that happen for the new games that are going to be coming up in the first half of the following year. That seems to be much more what the focus is. There's still a big hubbub made about best director, best game, um, you know, a lot of those other, like, best ofs. But they don't even go through most of those. They just announce what the winners were. They don't have acceptance speeches for most of the awards. I didn't realize, like, how much politics and politicking went into the video game awards. Brian, were you aware that there was a lot of review bombing around God of War Ragnarok? Dude, I heard. Uh, also, uh, review bombing of God of, War, God of War Ragnarok, and it just happened again when Diablo released their newest patch. Yeah. The game on Metacritic is now down to like 30%. For for fans. For fans. Yeah. Like, it's amazing when nerds get upset, yeah. they light their virtual torches, oh, yeah. and then just slander whatever they can find in yeah. an online forum. Yeah. We are a wonderfully toxic community. We yeah. really are. Metacritic's bad that way. Um, Steam... At least you have to have owned the game in order to be able to put a review, or it's something that it like states. If you put a review on there and you don't own the game, it doesn't figure into their calculations on like the fan ranking of things. Um, but yeah, a lot of that stuff, like even Metacritic, in a lot of ways, is kind of hot garbage. I know I remember seeing somebody talking about how um, you know because Final Fantasy 16 was at like an uh, a 90 or an 89 or something like that on Metacritic and it wasn't a 97 it was a critical failure and it's just like the 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 journalist that was talking video game journalist that was talking about it was just like you don't understand like a 97 there's been like three of those in all time um you can't measure yourself up to the pinnacle of of games um, just because of that. And also just because a bunch of people say something is like the greatest game of all time doesn't mean that you're going to feel the same way. But that's the same BS that we're seeing. Unless it's Elden Ring. We're <laughs> seeing across a bunch of fields like, oh, it's the greatest you know, football player in his position of all time. It's like, it's tons of recency bias. And Brian will give you two second round picks and Amari Cooper for him. <laughs> hey, it wound up being, I was giving you a deal on the trade calculator, baby. You saw how that worked. Uh, I don't send things unless they're fair. And it was, uh, it's just crazy how it, there's always like the push. And I get a lot of it is just so that you can, you can draw hype, but everything's not always going to be the biggest and best of all time. Yeah. And that's just how this, everybody wants to make that about everything all the mm -hmm. time and it becomes too much because then at that point, all you're doing is talking about hype. Yep. And it's hyperbole. Elden Ring is approximately the 397th game developed by From Software. <laughs> the developer's first game, Kingsfield, released December 16th, 1994 for the original PlayStation. Brian was like 10. I was 11. Yeah, well, that's a good guess. Yeah, yeah it's pretty close. Yeah, it's right in the neighborhood. You're an 82 birthday, aren't you? 81. 81? Yeah. Oh, you're way older than yeah, me. Yeah, smoke free class of 2000. 82. 82. Okay, yeah. 83 here. All right. Yeah, the latest you entry. You guys were in the same grade? Nah, he was no. a year older. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. We were that in the uh, same chemistry class, though. Everyone in my grade thought Brian was a weirdo because he was taking chemistry a year early. Mm. He's just smarter than everybody. Sometimes. I wouldn't say that. Class of 2001 I don't know. Unite. Boom. There we go. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I forgot that I was in your guys' chemistry class. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. my God. Yeah, you're a quiet kid. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't a great introduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't know him, but he's good at chemistry. <laughs> good. 
He <laughs> thinks you're all dumb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was better than the time I saw you and Scott trying to punch each other in the nuts at a random Saturday night. Which one of those two did you laugh harder at? The nuts. Yeah. <laughs> the latest entry in the Souls-like genre, Elden Ring, is praised as the most accessible of the Souls games. It has a absolutely flawless and rock-solid Metacritic rating of 96 on PlayStation 5. The core gameplay loop includes fighting enemies, gathering souls, leveling, leveling up, exploring for dungeons and loots, battling larger-than-life bosses, and then repeat all of those things 100 million billion times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and a fair. Cool game design. Yeah. So uh, I think it would help to discuss our overall appetite for Souls games. And we've talked about this a little bit through the show already, but Burnsy... You hated Elden Ring with a burning, fiery passion. Are you ready to no. push all of the Souls-like genre into the lava and be done with this uh, subgenre for all time, or what? No, no. Um, I mean, okay, going back to it, I've avoided Dark Souls. I don't think I'll ever play a Dark Souls game. Um, the worlds don't really appeal to me that much, and the gameplay of being mostly just, like, kind of block with a, a shield and, and fight with a sword and stuff like that just doesn't seem interesting to me. I played Demon Souls, so yeah, similar thing, um, for about five to seven hours. Got to the point where all my weapons were broken. I didn't know how to fix them, so I was fighting with two shields and raged out. Um, never played it again. Um, and I have played and really enjoyed Bloodborne, um, but I'm nowhere near completing it. So that's my history with Souls games going into Elden Ring. The one thing I note for you is I think you'd really appreciate like the core design of the Dark Souls world because like everything funnels back to each other in a really interesting way. Like you're in this new area and you're battling your way through and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, like you pop back up an elevator. It's like, oh, here I am right back in the center of this world. Like mm-hmm. that's fascinating how they do that together. I think that's maybe the one thing you're missing from Dark Souls. And I know that I said it was board and sword earlier, but like there are other ways that you can play it. But I think the most generally accepted, like straightest line through the game is board and sword. I also say I did play like the first hour and a half or two hours of Sekiro. I did enjoy that. I didn't super get fun. I didn't get to any of the, like the super difficult things, and I, all I heard was people talking about how frustrating it gets. And so I was just like, "Yeah, I'll just leave on a high note." Yeah, the game just ends with a bull that you can't possibly beat. <laughs> Brian, Impossible. You can't even see the health go down. Yeah, it's wild. Brian, you seem to have a love hate relationship with the Souls games. I know that you've played and destroyed Elden Ring, Bloodborne, Sekiro, but you hate the slow, clunky combat of the more, like, uh, the older games, like Demon's Souls, Dark Souls. So, like, where do you come in on the Souls games? I don't know if it's clunky or if it's just more slow-paced. I think it's slow-paced is probably a better way to put it. And that that is something that just doesn't jive with me a, a ton. Um, the Soulsborne games are really weird to me because gaming is something I typically do to relax. And off mic, prior, we were talking about how, like, even as I was getting into Elden Ring... I mean, I, I'm on New Game 3, I think, for, for Elden Ring. And even when I'm still playing it now, it's not relaxing. I always have this little bit of tension going, okay, you know, if you get in between three lower-level enemies, you're still probably dead because they're going to ping-pong you back and forth until your character dies and you lose all your runes. There's always nope, you just this... run away and cast rock spell at them. It's fine. Uh, yeah, it's easy. Uh, I have yet to this go through... This game is for babies. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to go through as a magic user, um, but that's definitely on the list of things to do. Um, but it's, I I enjoy the games. I I think that their combat can be snappy. Sekiro like is just just uh, just spoils me. It was just so much fun how that one worked. Um, yeah, it was so much fun. It wasn't fun at all. It was the weirdest thing. I know it was. <laughs> Tom just we tried to talk him through it, but it was just. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was not happening. I loved Sekiro. Like, I loved every moment that I put into it up to getting caught between the bull and Madam Butterfly. Is that her name? Yeah, Madam Butterfly. Like, is I was like, is stuck the first... between two hard bosses for any form of progression. And, like, eventually I just had to stop trying because I have, like, this never-ending wheel of OIO to prepare for. I was like, well, the fun-to-frustration ratio is completely out of whack. I got to move on. It was, I think the statistic for Madam Butterfly is nuts. Like, under 40%. Under forty percent of people that play that game will get past her. Yeah, she is very challenging. It was it was kind of crazy. If you can uh, find more snap pods, that might help. Uh, for my part, I really enjoy the Souls games in general. Like, I think there is a tremendous dopamine rush for overcoming obstacles. Burns, we'll talk about one of the places where you got hung up on Elden Ring, and I got stuck there too. Like, I was in a very similar spot. And eventually, I found a different place where I could grind some souls, and once I got over that hump, it's like, oh my god, this game is phenomenal. Generally, I really like the Souls games for me, and this is going to be like counter popular opinion, but I don't like the boss fights. The boss fights stress me out, man. Like, it's great to beat them, but it's like when I fight a new boss for the first time, I was like, oh my God, what the frick are they going to do to me this time? And like, how, how long is it going to take me to overcome this? Like, I love exploring the world and like finding little loops to grind out souls and finding the different loot that's hidden within the phenomenally crafted areas, but the boss fights are almost the low point for me. And it's hard. Masterpiece, apparently. Masterpiece, timeless classic, no flaws in and this game. And it's tricky because you got to be against the boss long enough to learn some patterns, but particularly early on, most of the bosses can kill you in a single hit. So it's just like, okay, am I going to just roll around to try to get some knowledge here before I die? Because that's inevitable. Or, like, what's what's the other outcome? It's very early on, man. This is a game that repeatedly punches you in the crotch. Yeah, it's very good at it. Expectations going into Elden Ring. Uh, I thought it was going to be the best Souls experience of my life, and we'll see if that wound up being the case or not. Brian, your expectations? Like, you played it right at launch, right? Yeah, and I was hoping that it was, it was touted as this really crazy dense open world um and I, that's what i was hoping i was gonna get and, it, and i did get that and, and we're gonna get more into that kind of stuff in a second but um i was not expecting the variability of the, the combat system there's so many different ways to do it so many viable ways to do it and how they made a huge open world with interesting things abound we talked about before about big open spaces. Well, big open spaces are pointless if there's nothing in those open spaces. But they, they lived up to it. Let's dive into those specific areas a little bit later in the mm -hmm. discussion. Yeah. Bernsey, your expectations going into the 2022 Game of the Year and your favorite genre. I knew it was a highly regarded game, and I was hoping that my learned enjoyment for Bloodborne would carry over to Elden Ring. And just in a nutshell, did that? Because like I've noticed that there is... Shared experience, the more you play from software games, like there's a feel to the movement that is just crucial, like how you position yourself in fights. Did you feel like that experience in Bloodborne helped prepare you for success in Elden Ring? Uh, yes and no. All right, hated it with a burning, fiery passion. Got it. Well, Bernsey, what kind of a build did you approach Elden Ring with? So it had an option for a samurai, and I was bouncing around between, well, should I try to do a magic user? Should I try to do this or that? And it's just like, I'll just be a samurai because I like samurai. And so um, I figured that would be a good option. Was that a good option for you? Um, I mean, ultimately, I think so. And I was looking at it like after the fact and, you know, I was looking online and it's one of the better builds, they say, because you start off with a bow right away. So you have both really good uh, melee combat and you have really good um, ranged combat. Um, you know, it's just, you know, 
your melee, you don't really have any way to protect yourself except for to roll. Um, you can block and parry and stuff like that, but it's I think it's a little bit trickier. And granted, you have better decks, so you should be a little bit better at that. Um, but they say one of the benefits for earlier on for newer players is to have the bow. Um, problem is, is you run out of arrows fast and so you know then it's like well i gotta try to find i gotta try to find more materials for that um to get that but i i liked the gameplay of the samurai so i don't think that it was like the wrong fit for me i feel like the uh the rolling the heavy reliance on rolling as someone that doesn't have a thousand hours of from software in your belt like i feel like that might have been a detriment to the experience because like i struggle with uh roll timing and direction that wasn't too bad. Like, when you get swarmed by enemies, yes, but the answer to that is to not get swarmed by enemies. Like, to try not to aggro so many that they're going to surround you. And if they do, try to get to a spot where you're not in that position. Um, that was when I had the most... Well, that and, you know, you shouldn't be trying to roll around if you're fighting something right next to a cliff, right? <laughs> so, you know, you, you learn those things relatively fast or, or you touch the little blood pools and see people do that and you're like, yeah, let's not be that guy. Um... So, you know, really, my problems with the game were not meeting mobs in the open world and fighting them. And so that was perfectly fine for me. Yeah, mobs in the open world are fun. I played a straight intelligence caster, very squishy. And some of the things I struggled on, struggled with early in the game was I couldn't find any weapons or spells. I couldn't find any smithing stones to upgrade the weapons that I did have. I got stuck between the first big hard boss and some challenging areas, and I couldn't figure out how to kill skeletons. So right around like the 10 to 15 hour mark, those were the walls that I was running into with my caster. What were you using for your main spell of attack? Oh, uh, Rocksling, or was it the no Rocksling? I just started it. using around hour fifty. That thing probably made the game a lot better for you. Yeah, oh, I was I was pretty into it. It was uh, there's like a lesser Soul Stone, I think, is what you start with, and then I think I found the next step up from that, like average Soul Stone or advanced Soul Stone. One of the things that this game does that is kind of BS is it does input reading. So for those of you that don't know what that is, you'll see it in old games like Mortal Kombat, you know, Street Fighter. The game will actually read your input that you're putting in and respond you faster than than a human possibly can and i found that as a caster there were times when i'd like sling my spell and it's like oh roll and then i cast another spell roll it's like oh they're waiting until exactly when i hit cast uh for at least the caster uh classes there was a spell that i had access to which i think was stars but it would track things so like they'd try rolling and they'd still get hit so it's like all right well i will run away and cast this thing and Sometimes they dodge one or two of them, but it'd send like three starbursts at them and always one would hit. So as long as I had enough uh, mana, stamina, uh, the blue gauge, I could generally outlast faith, those. Faith, right? Faith. And Was that, it faith? No, intellect. It's your mana. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's arcane. Um, the And the thing about that rock sling that's so useful is that the game inputs reads you casting it, but the rocks don't come out right away. So they roll... And then the rocks come out and hit them every time. I watched a, a video. And it can stagger them, which is nice. A guy is facing a wall, throwing his magic into a wall, not aiming at the enemies to the right. You can see all of them rolling as he throws it into the wall 90 <laughs> degrees to their left. It's like, that's that's when we start to get into the fake difficulty scale, right? Like, that's, that's just cheap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, casters have a lot of advantages. But, Brian, you're on new gameplay number three, or new game number three. What builds did you use specifically on your first playthrough? First was Faith, 
So I built um, a character that was largely based off using incantations, some different dragon abilities, um, as well. Are the dragon abilities cool? Like, they have cool names, but I don't have any faith, so I'll never, literally never see those. Uh, dragon Rot, or uh, was it, is it Dragon Rot? Yeah. So basically, you, you have this di- gigantic dragon head spawn over you, and you breathe out this toxic stuff. And you can run away from certain bosses, and they will sit there, and it is deal to you, right? So you can just melt them as you kind of ride torrent around them. That's one way to do it. You can do that against the fire giant if you can get close enough. Um, and it was fun. I used the, the what's called the bastard blade. It's a it's a very powerful blade that you could fire off um, bolts of uh, flame. And but it got boring after a while, so I switched to a dex arcane build. So I was doing uh, dual wielding um, uh, scimitars, and in this game they built something called power stancing. So you have the same type of weapon in both hands. You can do some unique um, attack strings. So for scimitars, if you jump in the scimitars, air, they, the sorry, C is silent. Thank yeah, you, scimitar. thank you, scimitars. I think it just sounds fun saying scimitar. So but. yeah, like Atreus. When you, oh my God, even Kelsey was getting after me for that one. Um, so when you jump in the air, you tap the attack button. You'll bring the swords in together once, and then they bring them back out so you get four hits on a single jump attack and you can melt things as long as you have a cult attached to them a cult is something that then scales off arcane and in late stage of the game arcane scales in a way that it's a lot more potent than say faith does or some of the other built oh that's good to know if i ever get there oh yeah so you so you're able to rip things down pretty dang fast um and then on top of that i used an ash of war called the bloodhound step have you guys heard of this nope bloodhound step is wonderful because it's not an attack it's purely a dodge it causes you to slide in any direction that you've inputted the move with and you slide about 10 feet in this game that's a tremendous amount of speed so like the 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 black knight cavalry that was like destroying you i could basically dash and keep moving around them it uses arcane uses my mana pool but so little i can just keep spamming it and i could constantly get to the back side of these things before they can even turn and shred them down Mm. and you're invulnerable the entire slide so between those two, it's almost game-breaking, but it's a different way to play, and it made it so much faster. I just couldn't stop doing it that way. You do like speed and aggression, my friend. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> what does Elden Ring do well? Brian, um, how's the world? <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of different things that I thought that it was, was pretty impressive. A, the world itself. The scale of the world is just overwhelming and beautiful, and the art style that they have on some of these buildings, from Stormvale to the old capital to, to, to how Kalid is this dying, rotting out place. Kalid sucks. It was, uh, yeah, those gigantic headed dogs, miserable. The mm-hmm. the worst thing in the game are the gigantic lobsters that are all over the place. Like, hey, I had that in my final thoughts and takeaways. Oh my god, I fought a giant lobster. That was cool. Lobsters are a joke. Um, so just from the art style, it's amazing. The amount of builds that you could do. There are so many viable builds, which is kind of crazy because in a lot of these games, you find like three or four that from the meta that are overpowered, and that's what people run with. But you could just, there's so much tweaking to be done. There's a lot of different ways to play it if you want to play it that way. It does seem a little silly, though, to have builds in a game that takes 70 to 100 hours to complete. Like... The idea of builds, in my opinion, is like you have all these different builds so that people can go through a game, play it one way, and then try it a completely different way and play through it all the way. And I know some people have played through the game to completion multiple times, multiple, multiple, multiple times in uh, Mike's 
uh, you know, case. Yeah, Mike freaking loves Elden Ring. Yeah, and so, like, but it just is like, <laughs> it's cool that people have lots of options, but it also seems like just a little silly that that's that there's that many options and, and some people aren't going to even experience, you know, most of them. It's just sort of weird. I don't know. That's... And it's not a negative. It's just something that I always find a little funny. Kind of like all the different builds in Diablo 4 and the game can take sometimes really long to go through. Again, not as bad if you uh, probably skip cutscenes and stuff. But Well, is the point to have different options when you replay the game or is the point to give the player an option to build their avatar in the way that they want on their so, lone playthrough? If it's that, they need to better understand, explain how all of that works when you choose. Not just, hey, pick Diaper Boy, pick Samurai, pick whatever, you know. It, it, it'll tell you a very little amount about what it does, but that doesn't give you any freaking information if you've never played the game before. So then it's like, okay, so I can go and do an hour of research and look around at lists of builds online. I'm probably not going to understand any of that. And so I think if you are trying to give people that as an option as to, hey, you're going to play this game one time, pick what's right for you, you need to give them a little bit better of an understanding of that of what those all are and how they play so that you could approach it that way. Um, let me make my quick point first, Brian. I was... I played Dark Souls as my first Souls game. Bloodborne was my second one that I really got into. I was a long way into Bloodborne before I realized that each of the different weapons had different attributes. The tricks. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. yeah, different and tied to it. So, like, in Dark Souls specifically, I was using a, uh, a dex or a strength-based weapon with a dex-based build. Yeah. So, like, it's, oh, I'm killing things with my bow. Great, I'll rely on that when I can. Um, so I, I think that's a major weakness of FromSoft is just yeah. not giving you the tools to know how to play not even optimized but effectively they do a better job in this game of that at least where if you're leveling things up there's somewhere in the menus i don't know that i could navigate back to it right now but there's somewhere in the menus where it basically helps to tell you that and so then if you're going to increase your decks it'll show you how your weapon is going to increase if you increase that, if it's a dex-based weapon. So there is a little bit better way to see that than there was in Bloodborne. Um, so I think they are incrementally getting better. Well, another that. 342 games, and they'll really yes. have the kinks ironed out. So, yeah. I think a lot of it, though, too, has to be... If I had to guess how they are drawing it, it's going to be more about the people that are doing this multiple times through. Because you need to be a lot around like a level 100, 120 before you can actually start specking into a lot of different builds if you reset your points. That's just how that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Based on that, and the other problem that happens with this game is for some folks, if you cannot find something as effective enough early on to get you through, people will quit. So, like, unless it's the mm-hmm. hardcore fan base, a lot of folks are like, well, look, I can't kill things. I'm getting murdered all the time. My armor sucks. I'm not having fun. And, and yes, then we go back is to... Is that the, the average player or is that Burns? I would say that is the average player. I'm an average player. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's really, really tricky that way. And it's particularly when... And what you may not even know about this game is, like, you've There's got... a lot I don't know about this game. You've got blunt dam- or bludgeoning damage. You've got piercing damage. You've got slashing yeah. damage. All of these things affect things in different ways. Yeah. And a lot of these are hidden attributes that you don't know mm-hmm. unless you're reading through the whole menu. And the game still doesn't tell you what that means. Mm-hmm. They are all about just kind of letting you float out there in the ether for the good and the bad. Yeah. 
I mean, for me, it's a lot of trial and error. Like, I'll have the different weapons that I found. Like, I look for things now that tie to my primary attribute. And so, mm-hmm. like, I'll look for different damage types. I was using um, the hook claws for a good chunk of this game because I had a fair amount of decks. Because I knew that decks helped you cast spells faster. So, uh, until I found an arcane-based melee weapon, those hook claws were the best thing that I could do. I thought that the exploration in Elden Ring was, honestly, and not to troll you, Burns, but I thought that the exploration in Elden Ring was as good as it gets in games. Like, I mean, it's not trolling me. I think the world was amazing, and it was very fun to explore. Um, I, there's beautiful art direction. Like, everything looks really cool and neat and is stylized in the different areas that you go into. And, you know, I even know that from the few areas that I went into. Um, and, you know, finding paths... You know, that you think are secret paths, but they're definitely built there so that you can get from one point to another point is really fun. Like, that's a really cool thing about the open world in this game. And how, so... How far did you get? Well, we'll get to that. No, it's it's kind of important for this part of the discussion. I would summarize that he's still in the early phases of the game. Did yes. you, get, you, got through, you got through Stormvale or not? I got around Stormvale. You went around? <laughs> so... <laughs> that is a thing! Let's go to it then. Um... I want to preface where I got in this game with my main gripe of this game. Um, if you... if And I don't know what From Software's goal is, right? If your goal know. is... To, Sell a bunch of games and they got your money. They sold, so yeah, they sold they the win. games, right? If their goal is to grow their player base and try to get more people to enjoy their games, I don't understand why your main thrust of the game pushes you into a fight that you can't beat. Being Margaret the Fell Omen. Yes. I don't understand that. It's like you're tying me into the story. I'm liking sort of where this is going and the insinuations that you're getting from the few cutscenes that you get as you rest at the bonfires leading up to Stormvale Castle. You fight the weird mob, the mobs of different like guards and stuff going in. You get in there, you get to that bonfire, you go in and fight Margaret and you're like bashing your head against the wall, which is fine because I know that that's how that goes. Um, And, uh, you know, then I went and looked online. It's like, oh yeah, I was at least like 10 levels below where I need to be to beat that guy. So it's like, okay, I'll go wander around a little bit. And the exploration was fun and it was interesting. And I bumped into some mobs that were harder and would kill me. And I'd learn what I needed to do against them. And I'd pick my souls back up or echoes, right? There are echoes in this game. I'd pick those back up and I'd go wander around some more. But eventually, like the wandering around with no sort of tie to anything else is just pointless. And so I could go back and bash my head against Margaret and realize I need to go grind some more. But at that point, the game hasn't done enough to draw me in with like the promises of what I'm going to experience later that at that point, it's just like, why do I, why do I continue? And so that's, that's where it got to with me where it's like, I could sit here and go grind because I, I wanted to give this game a fair shake. I wanted to try to play the game to a point where I would enjoy it. And so then I, I approached it. The first time I played it was in mid-February. I loved that first session. Like, I got to right below the walk up to Stormvale Castle. So when you bump into the Stone Giant, I got right into that point, And then I went down to the little village there with all the soldiers. And I went down into the cave underneath that. I loved that. 
Like that place was was super cool. You get to that area at night. There's these two like young dragons that are flying around or whatever the heck they are. And it's like okay, avoid those. You know, I I was smart. I saw the big golden guy when you got out of the opening area, and I'm like, I'm avoiding that piece of crap. That, yeah, he no killed way me. I'm gonna do anything to this guy. He killed me roughly 75 yeah, times at I, different phases of the game. I kept going down along to the left and like lurking around. One of the things that I think is really cool in this game is like the sort of stealthing around. Like I got into that quite a bit of like, you're walking up the wooded hill and there's these guards that are patrolling and it's like slowly walk up to them. Nine times out of 10, it actually does do a stealth attack. There's that one time out of 10 where for some reason, even though I'm in the same exact place I was before, it just does a slash and then I have to do whatever. But um, that all was super cool. Finding the different like catacombs was super cool. I get up to there, like that next session was really cool. Go up and bump into Margit, you know, bash my head against him a few times, realize there's no way I'm going to beat him. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go wander around a little bit more. But then I started to get bored because it's just like, okay, um, you know, I bumped into this group of enemies that are a little difficult, um, took a break, um, came back to it later and did the same type of thing. Um, But it was just one of those things where I kept just trying to explore new areas and it was fun to explore the areas, but eventually it was just hollow. Cause it's just like, I don't know. I'm really just marking time until I can go back and fight that guy to see if the story actually does keep continue to hook me in. Otherwise it's like, I'm finding a random person here that it's like, okay, you know, what does that person mean to it? That's neat and interesting. But without that main draw of where I'm going, it all just started to feel meaningless. And if I still needed to grind another like four levels or three levels to be to the recommended level to fight Margit, maybe I would still do it. Maybe I would need another 10 levels. It's just like, I don't know. At that point, it just got to be a little silly and it started to feel like a grind. And then I just never went back. I can see, I can see where you're coming from in a couple of different ways. I think that the gap between where people were typically arriving at that boss fight and how much farther you had to be along to make the fight really viable i think that was too big of a gap Mm -hmm. because you it's one thing if it's five levels it's another if it's 10 i think mine was 10 when i arrived there and it's really it is the first skill check and it is very unforgiving like it will just beat the snot out of you i think where we are a little bit different is that when you go back to the regular world right and you're you are exploring you should i think is the hope you find enough interesting things along the way to keep you interested in exploring. Oh, I found this sword. I'm now a little bit stronger. Hey, I found this piece of armor. I'm a little bit stronger. It's those little incremental victories that you can see yourself getting more powerful. If you're not collecting those, mm-hmm. I think that's probably taking away a lot of that enjoyment because you're like, well, yeah, I'm leveling up, but like my character is not changing all that much. Right. I'm not feeling like I'm in a more um, confident position with which to approach that right. boss fight. I was in. I was stuck in that same spot as you, Burns. Bashed my head against Margaret Fellowman over and over again. So I started exploring the rest of the world, and then I realized, hey, there's these runes on this map, and runes are an interesting new thing for Elden Ring. It's a, the microest of micro dungeons. Like it is a small area on the map. Somewhere in that area is a stairwell down, and at the bottom of that, there's generally a treasure chest. I'm like, oh, well, that's a neat thing. Hey, here's some treasure. This ought to help me. And then I touch a specific treasure chest, and like, boom, I'm in a whole new area of the world. I'm like, oh. I don't know how to get back. 
Did it put you in the mine? Yeah, I was in the Celia Crystal Tunnels. That mine was horrible. Those things beat were just nasty. Not as bad for a caster. Oh. They uh, they were weak to magic or maybe not as strong. Because, like, <laughs> I sneak attacked one with my uh, short sword or whatever I had for a melee weapon. Then it's, like, barely scratching them. Like, oh, this is going to be <laughs> the end of this game for me. Uh, and then I started casting. I'm like, oh, all right. They're tough. But... I can I can make some progress here. And once I found a site of grace there, like I'm like, all right, this is my soul's grinding spot. And eventually I had a loop that I did there that I could generally survive. Like and smithing 80, stones were in there. 85% of the time, there's smithing stones in there. I'm like, all right. And that is where I ground souls until I was able to overcome Margaret the Foul Omen. It came out of um, just that frustration of not being able to beat the boss that I was stuck on. And I poked around and I got lucky and I found this like teleportation trap is what it was called in a ruin to take me somewhere new. And I thought... But that was something that Elden Ring did mostly really well. Like, the runes were great bite-sized content. There are so many interesting things crammed in this world. And the catacombs. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up next. Yeah. Burns, you touched on this. There's catacombs. And catacombs are like a micro dungeon that have a boss fight at the end. Yep. And uh, I can't remember. It, you don't get treasure at the end. You usually get ashes of war at the usually, end, right? Usually, yeah. You can, get, you can get items too sometimes, but usually it's an ash of war. And generally, it's a bite-sized dungeon that doesn't take too long to clear. An interesting boss fight at the end, and then you get your new Ash of War, and then you're back into the world. I thought runes and catacombs were really cool additions to the formula in Elden Ring. And all the hidden walls. Like, some of them, you're like, you're hitting walls trying to find a an area that you can get into. Hidden walls are not fun. Hidden walls suck. <laughs> and I cannot imagine being the first person on the beachhead for this freaking game as... I'll be honest, if we didn't have this podcast, I probably would have fell and fallen off at Margaret the Fell Omen, too. Like, I would have just probably gotten frustrated and say, I'm going to take a break, and then never, ever gotten back to it. Mm-hmm. But I managed to push through. And when you get to points with hidden walls, like, I cannot imagine playing this game without the notes on the ground. Like, occasionally notes are silly, stupid, or worthless. But when they mark hidden walls, like, that player deserves a thumbs up, and I wish I could give them a hug and give them well, individual shout-outs on so OAL. When they say that, though, how do you get through them? Like, what do you, you have to hit do? Them. A melee attack. Okay. Or roll. Yeah. Okay. And the part that's interesting is there was one that got found by the hardcore community. Um, It took 50 hits to get through the wall. There's a a hidden wall that takes 50 hits. Hard pass. Where is it at? Uh, I think it's in the bloody bloody manor. It's way up on the northern, northwest portion of the map. Yeah, that's not it's not the bloody matter. It's like named after a family, right? And there's all those stupid hand things running around. Uh no, that's the that's the Cal it's not the Calid. Is it Calid? Might be. Yeah, it's it's much more north of there. We're talking the most north portion of the map to the west. Oh, I'm yeah, just I probably at the one there. you're talking about now though with the royal family. Those yeah. hands are creepy. <laughs> yeah, and kind of a pain in the butt to fight. Um I thought ruins were really cool. Catacombs are really cool. Uh, let's talk a little bit about healing in this game. One of the staples of the Souls formula is you have a flask that does healing. Elden Ring takes it a little bit further, and the flask can either be used to heal your health or heal your mana, and you have to make a conscious decision to delineate how many are mm-hmm. going to be healing potions versus mana potions, which as a caster, I was roughly 60% mana potion. Burns, was that one of the few silver linings of this experience for you? I, I like that a lot because, I mean, as someone who wasn't casting anything, 
it was like, all right, all five, all six into healing potions. You know, I think I got something that I could use faith to do. So I would put one into there maybe at some point or whatever. Or mana. I can't remember whichever one it is. That Because it, cause does... Faith is an attribute. Mana is what you use to cast your magic okay. abilities. But that's based off of either your faith or your intelligence, depending on what you're casting, right? Mind, yeah, I yeah. think. So yeah. faith, faith and int are two, typically two separate things. So spell spell users are much more used to be int. And then like... Uh, I was straight in, Tommy. Yep. And then like basically you're, if you're a witcher, if it's that idea, it's more faith-based. It's incantations. So, but what was it then for your... So like for, for samurai, you have like abilities that you can do. There's like a... And that was one thing we'll get to in a little bit, but like, so there was one ability that I had where you could do kind of the typical samurai thing where you wait for a second and then you unsheath it, um, which I, which was awesome. Um, and that used, I think it used faith. Yeah, and then it would and it would take from your mana bar because it's like yes, your special okay. move. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So because that's the only reason why I kept faith so that I would have be able to pop one of those if I needed to in combat to be able to do that more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another one that I had that was something similar to that, or that was a different ability that I could trigger with that. And so that was the only reason. Otherwise, I could go all the way. But I think that's cool to give you the ability to determine how many of those you're getting instead of it being a flat amount of each of them yeah based totally. upon what you're building so i think that i think that was a really smart uh addition on their part totally agree another new wrinkle in this game is a uh oh what do they call it the uh mysterious philic or uh there's a potion that you get to customize with things that you find in the world oh the the wondrous flask yes the i don't think it's flask is it wondrous maybe, wondrous is, something yeah is it philic I thought it was close to that. It's the third potion. And so what what you're allowed to do is as you go to these big herb trees, so when you look on the map, you can typically see these drawings of these big trees, and there's what's called an herb guardian there. So it's like a big robed ent. And when you murder said ent, it gives you what's called a cracked tear. And what you're able to do is these give you different properties. Anything from like, hey, this makes your spells more powerful for a little bit of time. This lets you heal for a little bit of time. This is going to do a replenish of both mana and life. And what you can do is you can put between, I think it's like two or three of them in this wondrous flask. I'm just going to call it for the moment. Um, you can put them in there so you can like create a custom wonder potion that you can bust out when you need it. Um, I think mine had mine had increased damage and I think life life uh, heal. I think it was mine something was like that. mine was increased magic damage and like increased mana regeneration. It makes sense and it's it's super useful and it lets you customize even a little bit further. Yeah, good stuff. Um, other things that I thought Elden Wing did really well, like Stormvale Castle was just so freaking good. It's so big! I spent over five hours exploring just the castle, and I know there was a lot more stuff. It Me was, too. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Burns. <laughs> it was very tense. I had this constant probing to find the next site of grace so I wouldn't lose the stack of souls from all the random mobs in it. I found the hook claws that I used forever. And then afterwards, after I clear out this huge dungeon, fight the end boss, I get out into the world. I'm like, oh my god, this world is freaking Opens huge. Up. It's like I have been looking at less than a keyhole, and I'm uh, 15 to 20 hours in. It's like, 
oh my god, like I will never see and experience everything that this game has to offer. And you got the lands to the east of Caled. You've got up north. You've got the capital, which I know that probably you guys won't even get to the capital at this point, but the capital is like four times larger than Stormvale Castle. It's just gigantic. And then beyond that is another plateau that you need keys to get up to as well. So it just keeps going. Plus, dive into count the things that are underground you don't know about. Not even underground, overground, everywhere. Everywhere you go, there's, like, cool stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm running to try to get to Ray Lucaria Academy. And it's, oh, there's a tower over there. So I poke up there, and, oh, of course, there's some bad guys. All right, kill all these dudes. And it's, oh, there's a new staff. Oh, my God, this is the game of the year. What I will say, though, to Game of the generation. What I will say to counter that is I feel like having all of that, um almost makes it a little bit harder to grind and build than it did in Bloodborne or probably other Souls games. For instance, um, you have to find the teleportation trap to get you to the spot where you found, oh, this is where I could grind out a bunch of souls. That was punishment to everybody else, by the way. Tom had a great time. <laughs> right. <No. laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, so it's like, you need to like stumble in to find like that place. In Bloodborne, you walk through the two or three different corridors or paths to get to where you're going next, and you find which one you like to go through and continually go back through to grind that up. Whereas here that path is spread out over a pointed a direction and try to find something that you're going to use to be able to get your um you know your your echoes and it's just like i feel like that actually makes that early game grind if you don't know what you're doing that much more harder than it does in bloodborne because you're constrained to a couple of paths to get to where you're going um, and and it, it, it gives you that ability to do that. And so that's that's where I feel like even though the world was awesome to explore through and try to find things, you, you still almost feels like you needed to randomly stumble upon what was going to be the key to get you to that next level. Otherwise, you're just killing a few things here or there and grinding up a couple of hundred echoes at a time, which is just going to take forever to get to anywhere near where you need to get to try to push forward in I the I think main it's runes, story. by the way. Or runes, sorry. I was going to let you just go. Echoes <laughs> is Bloodborne. Yeah, I got so much crap about the Atreus thing, so like, I was just going to let you go with that one. Yeah. I, I'm going to say something, Brian. You can react to it. I think what this game desperately needs in the opening sections is some sort of carrot to draw you to the Weeping Peninsula, because I would have overlooked that entire area completely if not for our friend jim mentioning in discord it's like hey you should go check this thing out now because i went to it a little bit further in the game and i was way over leveled for it and i went right around the time i think it was just after i beat margate and before i went to stormvale i went into this other area no it was after stormvale uh, and i just rolled through it it's like that is such a big area with a lot of interesting stuff and more tools in it like i feel like that is the lifeline that a lot of players may need to get over the margate hump i I agree, and I also think that the game does a really good job about blocking you from areas that are too hard too early. It keeps you in that lower continent for a reason. These and I things, thought that Margaret was, or not Margaret, I thought that the Weeping Peninsula was behind one of those points because there's that big ballista. I'm like, oh, well, it killed me like twice as I was trying to cr go across the bridge. I'm like, all right, I just won't go to this area. Not that big a deal. Plenty of other stuff to explore. And then it's like, oh, just ride past it on the horse. And it's like, oh, all right, well, this is... Actually, surprisingly easy. I like stomping guys. This is not as hard as the rest of this game has been. Exactly. And once you... It gives you a bigger <laughs> playground 
Thanks for the heads up, Jim. It gives you a bigger playground to run around with some of this stuff. And the thing is, is that this game, they they created the, the an easier mode in this game. And I don't, did you guys ever wind up using companions? Um, yes. And did, I had a note to talk jump? about them no, earlier. No, because I couldn't figure out, like, what all of it meant and how to do it. Short version, you can summon NPCs to fight at your side, and you know that you're in an area that allows that, because you'll see a tombstone in the lower left corner of your TV glowing. It's telling you, hey, you can summon a companion here. Nope, never did that. If you want help. Huh. So, like, you can, you'll find, like, undead soldiers, or you'll find archers, or, like, you find something called a mimic, which creates itself to look just like you and use your same skills, and it are fights you, with you. Are you talking about Ashes of War, or mm-hmm. different summons? Or? No, it's a different summon. So, basically, it's... Because I found summoning totem, totems all over, I'm like, I'll make sure I touch that, because when I get to the boss, I'm going to want the duder. That's summoning help for the boss fights, which you can do. You can bring in NPCs to help you as you go into those fights. Sometimes you gotta do a side quest to make them accessible, much like Bloodborne was. But no, there is... Uh, I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me, though. You can use... Um, it's it's summoned it's summoned helpers that you can find 15, 20 different kinds of them in the game. And as long as you have one, which you can find on the starting continent, when you go in these areas, you can draw them out and they will assist you in fighting the way that you're going. But the game, the problem always with FromSoft, it doesn't explain a lot of these concepts. Well, and and you can find, like, if you're trying to help newer players and give them these systems to be able to lean mm-hmm. into... You need to lead them somewhere where that is. From Soft, there's an area that's awesome that lower experienced players could go through and really enjoy. Awesome's put, a strong word. It was all right. They put a ballista there to make it seem like you can't get there. I'm just saying, it really does feel like, sure, we want to show you what it's like to be punished over and over and over again. And we're going to, like, to me, it almost feels like they don't want you to find that stuff. Or they want you to find it later and be like, oh, I wish I would have went there before. But then you realize you didn't go there before because they actually dissuaded you from going there. And so this is the bullshit that I talk about with this game. I really wanted to like this game. They didn't really want me to like this game. I think sometimes this comes down to what kind of gamer you are. So when you play Skyrim, which you talked about is maybe one of the best exploration games you've played, are you someone that goes straight to Whiterun? No, I wander all over the place. But that's the same thing, right? You're going off into the world and you're fighting things. You're finding small areas. You're not following the story. So what's the difference there outside of having occasionally something that just goes F you crush? Yeah, the difference is, is they bought me into the story with at least a few levels of it other than just I stopped at this uh, site of grace and uh, uh, this gal with one eye closed come and t- came and talked to me. I stopped again and she came and talked to me again. Oh, this story is amazing. Mm-hmm. I've made I've made some level of progress in the main quest. No, I don't know a cotton picking thing about what's going on in this game and they haven't they haven't hooked me enough. It's like it's like if you're writing something, mm-hmm. there's the inciting incident. You need to give someone something to pull them in to get them to buy into reading the rest of your book, watching the rest of your movie, watching the rest of your TV series. Yeah, you should uh, pay to put it on OIO, and you can reach me at Tom Solotic OIO on all social <laughs> so, platforms. But, but, but with Elden Ring, they, 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 they give you these little breadcrumbs and then bash you into a difficult boss, and then... 
you know, you can go out and wander the world and maybe you get lucky and find this area that's really cool and really draws you in, but maybe you wander off in the wrong direction and it seems cool at first, but then you're just fighting one or two things here and there and you're not actually leveling and you're just like, okay, well, I'll walk in this direction. So I'll and eventually it feels less like you're leveling up and you're gaining experience and you're learning about the world and it feels more like you're just walking around on the hillsides with Gandalf without Gandalf and and freaking Frodo you know I can I can see what you're saying there and I can I think the leveling system itself kind of contributes to some of the structure that you're talking about yeah. I'm just going to put it shortly if you are someone that skips white run and goes off to the to the world in Skyrim at that point, you're not the, the dragon powers you're skipping. You don't even know that this cool part of the game you're unaware of. You're going off into this world outside of you leveling because if you die, you still get to level. What are you gaining when you go out there so in Skyrim? To to make this an equitable comparison, yeah. This is if you went to White White Run mm -hmm. and there was a boss that killed you, okay. and you can't get into White Run until you wander around. Okay, that's the difference. You you want the choice. I want to be able to at least get bought into the story. Like, I know I went to Whiterun. I fought the mm -hmm. dragon and stuff like that. I did some wandering around before that. But I had the ability to go then and dig into it when I wanted to. And, and it wasn't a major roadblock. Not road that block. I had it to wasn't. spend 10, 15 hours of the game before I could get to That's that fair. point. Like, if I'm trying to... If I'm telling you a story and I don't get to what's going to hook you about the story until 10 minutes into the story... You're gonna zone out at minute two. Um, if you are if you are your subtype of gamer, I think that's where this comes across is that this isn't built for you. I no. came back to White Run. <laughs> I came back to White Run at level forty because I didn't give a crap about what the story was. I was murdering everything. I came back. There's dragons in this game. I've been playing for forty <laughs> hours. I didn't see a single dragon. I'm like, there's no. This is yeah. dumb. It just depends on what kind of gamer you are. True. I, think. I would argue there's much more of the people that need a little bit of a narrative to pull them somewhere than there are people that just are running around and bashing things and trying to trying to uh, build up that way. Okay. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Okay. But if you're trying to build a player base, you need to you need to play to all those types of players. And maybe they don't give a crap about that. Maybe I'm just shouting into the breeze that FromSoft doesn't care about. But it's hard for me to have people call it a masterpiece when it purposely fends off other people trying to want to enjoy the game. I'm not even talking about accessibility. No, like the opening it's level just, of Bloodborne. Same stuff, it's right? It's just obfuscation. But at least with Bloodborne, you didn't have this whole world to just wander off and get lost in. You had to shoot. And yeah. make, you had to shoot. And then at least within that constrained shoot, you knew what you needed to do to get there. Mm -hmm. Instead of this wide open world, I could walk in any one of these 360 degrees to try to figure out how to get to that point. And it's like, you make the wrong choice. You just keep wandering for a while. And so that's, that's where like I kind of got to in the game is it just felt kind of futile. Um, and you know, I could try to get to the random spot on the map that you sent me that Jim talked to you about. But then it's just at this point, it's like, I don't even know. Like I look at my map and I look at like the map on my phone screen. It's like, I don't even know how to get, anywhere close to that so it's just like it just got to a point where it was just like i it was getting more and more frustrating to play the game just because like it didn't buy me into it and so then at that point it's like i don't understand why i should continue on it right now because then it's like then if you start playing a game and you're frustrated already 
you're not gonna you're not gonna start enjoying it when you start playing it that way. And I had that a couple of times where I'd pick up the game and I'd do one thing and I'd already be like instantly pissed off. And it's just like, well, why I shouldn't play it right now. Funny. And then it just got to that point where I never I never picked it back up. That was a tirade right there. That was, was sorry. <laughs> Funny, I had a lot of that same feeling towards the Outer Wilds, just not being in the right headspace to play it. Right. A couple a couple of reactions to the things that you said there, Burns. Growing the player base. FromSoft has been making games since 1996. Like, I think I, the Souls, like, they are unapologetic about the level of accessibility. So, like, I'm not as concerned right. about them growing a player base. And, like, I am bummed that you didn't get into, like, the heart of this experience or it didn't click for you the way it clicked yeah. for me. But one thing that I think is interesting about Elden Ring, uh, you and I are often very aligned. We're both very mm-hmm. narrative-driven gamers. And Brian and I like to poke at each other for me being narrative-driven and you being gameplay-driven. Read Tom. I, I read lots of books. <laughs> um, I'm reading Thrawn right now. It's great. In this game, like I was able to shut off that narrative needing brain, and like I just enjoyed the wandering around, grinding souls, exploring the world. And for some reason, this game clicked for me just yeah. on that gameplay level. And I, I know that this is gonna make you bristle, but I think this was a masterpiece. I think this is one of the greatest games ever made. And I'm just yeah. sad that it didn't click for you in the same See, way. See, and that's kind of where I'm at with the Outer Wilds. You know, it's just I'm the only person standing there out of my group of friends. And the only person on the planet. No, I'm the only person in my group of friends that seems to be, maybe not the only person, because I think there's other people that bounced off of it that we know too, so. We've spent a fair amount of time talking about the strengths of this game and how much Burnsy loves it. Let's <laughs> move on to where this game struggles. And I'll start here. I will just say completely objectively and say nothing but the facts that this game struggles in no ways. It is a flawless masterpiece and in line with the best games of all times. The end. Go home. Seriously? Like, you, you got to be able to come up with something here. Like, even games that I love and adore, I can at least... I can at least say that there's a few things here or there that could have been better. Tom, why don't you to explain to me up to this point? I wish that what my brain. Do you know of the story? Why don't you tell me the narrative up to this point? <laughs> I'll answer Burns first, and I wish my brain and my reflexes were just better, so I was more efficient with the things that I did. And Brian, the story is a tumble disjointed mess. There's a tree. There's a lady who pops up at fires. I have a magic horse um one dude had a dragon on his arm and like the coolest freaking cutscene. um and now i have a dragon that i can put on my arm but i don't have any faith so i can't do any dragon stuff apparently you sound like you have schizophrenia right now do you realize what those <laughs> sentences coming out all at once uh-huh yeah there's there's a magic uh treasure chest that sent me to my happy grinding place Great stuff, yeah. Totally <laughs> linear and wonderful. This is the, to me, this is the biggest struggle with all FromSoft games is that they really struggle with putting together a cohesive narrative. And I understand that they want you to be reading the descriptions on all these things. They want you to kind of piece the lore together. But they specifically said at one point, they're like, hey, you know, we like our players to make the connections, even if the connections have to be invented. If you can't fix your own plot holes... That's not up to me. I didn't pay $70 to fix your plot holes. Well, at least they did the only sensible thing in the world, and they hired a writer who stopped writing books to help them build out the world. Oh, my God. And the amount of confusing names. And then it's very confusing that when I described this to people the first time I was playing it, I knew there was a giant golden tree. And I'm going to keep going to that tree. And I'm going to kill a bunch of people on the way to the tree. And at the end, I burned that tree down. 
That's all I really understand. And then I got to watch a 40-hour video by Vita Vea or whatever the guy's name is that does all the research. Oh, is that the defensive tackle for the Bucks? Uh, I think <laughs> it might be. But it's 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 the... It's, it's Donkey Kong Sue. It's no, the long videos of lore, and I don't know where he gets it. It's like, oh, then this happened, this happened. I'm like, where is this in-game? Where is this written? Where is this on the items? Like, they don't do that. And, and they're so foolish about how they put some of the story stuff together because every all of their hardcore nerds are like oh you know it's the best written narratives it's like but if it's not an understandable narrative that's where i have a problem and it's not understandable and brian you hate story with a burning fiery passion i can dig a story but this isn't a real story i feel like it's just oh if you don't get it you know you're not in the game enough which is such an elitist gate like keeper mentality yeah um, I think some of the others are small parts. I hate how they do multiplayer in these games. Hate it. I've never played with another player in a FromSoft game. If you're going to in this I one, probably will not. You have to go to the same spot of the map the other person is, put down a seal. Hopefully the seal shows up in their game. It may work, it may not work. And then if it does work, you can maybe enter the game. And then after you kill a single boss, it boots you back to your own game. It's it's kind of just dumb i don't i don't understand why they can't make it a lot more smooth of a process i want to play with my friends but when you're doing it this way when it's not a guarantee that i'm even going to get into their game i think that's just kind of stupid to begin with is it easier for people to like as a antagonist invade your games or is that not a thing in elden ring it is a thing i i don't know if it's an option you have to turn on or off i had it happen a couple times and in fact even in game they have npcs that'll that when you go to certain areas that'll invade your game um one of yeah which, the one back at the uh what's that castle that you go back to Storm with Mail? the round table and all the npcs oh, the like keep? the g-string yeah there mm-hmm. yeah that one caught me off guard that guy in the lower level running around or where was he no it's like on the round table in the main room I don't, oh yeah 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 there was a fight in there yeah so oh, no. well that surprised me great i'm dead and that's that's part of the fight about how this game works is like sometimes i don't know if you guys were like me i walked out in the middle of that lake and the dragon landed on me i was like oh that's done it like literally <laughs> no. just destroyed me in an instant hit but it's like if i they made it easy for you to play with npcs but they didn't make it easy to play with your friends and just i hate their fall damage like they have a system built in place did you guys ever find those glittering stones mm-hmm. so the whole point of those glittering stones is if you're standing on a ledge and you drop one if it falls and it shatters that will kill you that drop distance will kill you that's what oh, that I'll, stone does i was thinking of like the uh rising airlifts i think the rising airlift like you jump yeah. into it with it oh yes 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 like the, the tornado almost i had yeah. i experienced one of those all right yeah. and, and you can jump down from those and yep. it won't kill you but then sometimes if the if the gem doesn't break you're supposed to be able to survive it but i jump off and die next to my gem which is intact <laughs> and i'm like well are they not doing the math on no, this? you had to hit that spot <laughs> <laughs> it's a very specific landing site yes. and you that's dropped another stone next to it if that's where you're gonna drop <laughs> and it just it just takes away from some of it for for me I, again i put so many hours into this i really don't understand the story in any way and if i'm putting 150 hours into a game if i can't figure out the story because you can't you can't give it to me in a way that's cohesive then that's is that on me or is that on you right well and i think one of the one of the things we already touched on this just a little bit but um having like the systems or even like stats and some of that stuff just not really well explained or in a format that makes it easy to understand the interplay between everything, 
Um, you know, granted, like I said, I feel like it's better in Elden Ring than it's been in the other FromSoft games that I've played, but it's like, I still feel like it is a detriment to your game's design if in the game you can't see what certain things do, and you have to go to a wiki outside of the game to try to figure it out if you have a question on something. I still feel like that's bad game design, even if it's hidden in the submenu of a submenu that's a big help text that you could look through with different classifications to explain these things. Like, lots of games will do it where you can sort of see the messages when it explains all these different items to. Now, granted, I know it's different because they put them and hide them in the same space of all of the other things where someone's like, Hark! Look ahead! You know? Uh, or or talking about bow down or all the stupid, you know, from soft speak that people that people that are fans of all the games like sort of throw out there. Um, but it's like, I don't know. I, there needs to be some way to be able to look at that so that when I get to the point where I'm trying to use a certain ability that I can actually figure out how to do it again. So, like, for instance, the unsheath ability. For some reason, every now and again, when I would start the game back up, it would go back to one of the other abilities. And, uh, you know, getting to one of my other points, digging through the menu to figure out how to re-equip that crap is so convoluted. And it's like, I'm just flipping through all of these levels of all of these menus to try to figure out how it is that I can change this back to what I liked. And that's just kind of... It's just so cumbersome, and, you know, I, I, I feel like that's something that they need to do a better job of. Oh, yeah. um, and I get it that it's a complicated game, and there's lots of things, and it's hard to explain those things, but I don't know. I think at some point, that should be a negative, and they should have to get better. They should get good at <laughs> that, you know? Did you, did you guys go through the tutorial? I mean, is that just the first area when the you first, start? Before you step out and there's the tree sentinel outside, there's the tutorial area that you guys go through there. Yep. Yeah. A bunch of people missed it. So, huh. like, because it, you could walk past it. If you went to the left instead oh, of the yeah. right, yep. you would miss it and you wouldn't even know that it's there. Yeah. And a bunch of people were like, I don't understand how this game works. There's a guy I talked to, he's like 100 hours in. He's like, I just found out that run is hold circle. He's like, <laughs> did not know that this was a thing. <laughs> but it's like, to... to Quickly touch on what you're talking about with how many sets of armor and, like, I mean, I, just the amount of weapons and armor in this game is absurd. Mm-hmm. But the, the the menus get really, really cumbersome. And if you don't teach people how to properly use everything, they're missing a huge portion of your game. Yeah. Monster Hunter has had that problem for years, right? Monster Hunter Rise finally has been this version of it where the game is actually approachable enough. I'm now hooked. Mm-hmm. But 4, 4 didn't tell me how to do anything anything i grew so frustrated not being able to find a resource in game to help me understand what was happening that i quit monster hunter world was so good i remember playing with you it was a very frustrating experience oh my god (laughs) i am i am now 200 hours into risen played the crap out of it and it's risen or monster hunter rise i'm sorry rise rise sorry and risen is a different franchise uh Elden Ring has made me better at Monster Hunter because it's all about invincibility windows, finding your openings, and making sure that your hitboxes and hurtboxes are where they need to be. It has made me better at that game, and playing that game more has made me better at Elden Ring. So it's just funny how some of these games can actually like improve your play. Oh man, he got good. One of the things that I struggled with with Elden Ring was targeting can often just be a total pain in the balls. Like as a caster, like I need to 
target an enemy, I need to cast my spell. Oh, and like yeah. sometimes if they roll, if they move, or if I need to move the guy that I'm targeting, suddenly I'm facing a wall and like yeah. they're running up behind me and killing me. And like, you know, for new games and new developers, sometimes you just have to cut them a little bit of slack. But the Souls genre is experienced. And I ran into targeting issues in multiple of these games now. And at times in Elden Ring, it was just inexcusable how difficult it was to target an enemy that I was actively fighting. Is it target or lock on? Lock on. Well... You- if you were in a combat and you were fighting a bunch of things in a dungeon, it would be hard to focus on just one. So, You're good! So really, this is just simulating what it would really be like to be a spellcaster in the deepest depths of a dungeon. Well, here's hoping to God that I don't end up in this mine with these giant centipedes attacking me over and over and over again. I'm pretty sure you responded to one of my threads on Reddit. Are you Dragonbanger49? <laughs> yes. Okay. I knew it. It's one of my many online personas. <laughs> it's just—it's interesting to me that there's so many issues with the targeting with an established franchise. Yeah, my face there, like it just super duper frustrating. And that's the thing about From Software, and I get that people love their games, and I can understand why. Like seriously, I've been bragging on this, and I tend to be a negative Nancy about a lot of their games. Bloodborne was an exception, um, and and I can completely understand why people love these games. I can see that it's not that for me, but I can understand that. But, like, to just continually give developers a pass on not improving some of these things is just kind of ridiculous. And you're, you know, if you hold them accountable for some of those things as fans of the series, they will start to develop those things and make a better game as a whole for everyone. And, like, as a melee character, it's less of an issue because you run into your enemy, you hit him with your sword. Like, visually, you can control a lot more. With As a spellcaster, like, my spells are going in directions. And, like, if it's not locked on, like, it's not targeted the right thing, like, I may as well just turn around and face the wall. Yeah. I mean, it still sometimes matters because there's still random times where we'll be facing someone and then you'll slash off in a different direction either because you're angled a slightly different way or what. It's hard to tell. Um, and so, I don't know. There's still there's still some things that could be improved with how that works. And I understand locking on and, like, cycling focus in games is something that a lot of games struggle with. But I think the fan base always gives them a pass on their janky stuff. Oh, it's just how the games work. Yes. Yeah, but it doesn't mean it has to. Yeah. Like, we've played a lot of games that the, the interface nowadays has improved. The, the fluidity of the combat stuff has improved. We, there's a higher bar to be met. So when your game is doing things that was a common problem, you know, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. we've moved past that. And when you're considering what is widely regarded as one of the best games of the year it came out, possibly one of the best games of the generation, like, I think it's fair to be critical about these things. Yeah. Even of a masterpiece. (laughs) So, Bernsey, I'll turn to you. Thoughts on the narrative in Elden Ring? Um, I didn't get to experience much of it, so it's hard for me to judge. What little I did get was intriguing, but I'm not sure it's an effective way to be drip-fed the story between hours of wandering, grinding, and foundering. So Very diplomatic answer. Yeah. Well fielded. Like I got into this position after Stormvale. I was out in the world. I literally didn't know what to do next, so I just started wandering in random directions, which I had a lot of fun. I killed a bunch of stuff. So these are the notes that I took in the time that I played the game of the different NPCs I met so that if I saw the name again, I could search for it and find it. Do you do that with every game? No. I did this with Elden Ring because I know that FromSoft doesn't do some things, and I also knew that there's certain things where NPCs will pop up at different times and, like, they'll ask you to say certain things. 
And so I've been, I, I made notes about different people I found in different places also so that if I needed to go buy something, I could go back to that merchant and buy it there. And Brian and I could see this. Listeners could not, but Bernsey has an extensive note on his phone of just all the different stuff that he was talking about. Like, Burns, if I had put that much work into this game, like, I would feel pot committed. Like, I would continue playing this game until I got a payoff for that work that I was also, putting in. Also, use a Rolodex. Way easier, plus it's satisfying. <laughs> Physical notebook? I'm a paper person. No, there's mostly just the timeline of notes so that I can go back and look at different things that I experienced. And now that you're never going back, are you just going to smash your phone into a million billion pieces? No, it's just that note will slowly filter down as I create more and more notes in my phone and it just won't be looked at again. Yeah, all the notes on Brian's phones are all just like phallic images. Nothing wrong with phalluses. They look like rocket ships and I aim for the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of aiming for the moon, your thoughts on the narrative, my friend. You already kind of covered it, but... It's... It's convoluted, to say the least. I, I feel like, at least with Bloodborne, I could get a better idea of where that narrative was going. But it's between the names, so many names of characters sounding so much alike, and between just by the time that certain markers, you get to like certain kind of uh, you know set pieces that move you to the next part of the story, and when you get there, and you're having trouble finding the threads of the prior story up to this point matching up with where you are now and it's like you missed something huge like I missed book two of whatever it was supposed to be reading it's like what how the did we get here yeah and then that just keeps happening I fought a fire giant no idea why he existed I killed him bunch of giants everywhere else were dead couldn't find out why that happened either but it was neat and I moved on and it's just like (laughs) Or when they're talking about, oh, I'm going to fight this fallen god who's actually two gods that were married, but now they encompass one body, but the body's rotting, but we're not sure why it's rotting. It's like, what are we doing? I don't, that's, it's, it's like, it's, it's like somebody was, was uh, translating this from a foreign language, but they'd only taken it up to elementary school. So they were just piecing together with the best of their not. Who here has seen Book of Mormon? It's yeah. like when the guy is trying to teach Jesus to the people in Africa and he has Darth Vader. That's what happened. I feel like they didn't know where they were going with it. And other people, it was like a crappy game of telephone. It just, it wasn't good. 2022 I, yeah. game of the year masterpiece. <laughs> So, Brainsy, you've had your struggles with this game, but people are going to listen to this podcast and they'll say, Elden Ring sounds pretty good. I want to go play me some Elden Ring. And they, you know, they go they go to GameStop, they buy a pre-owned copy, they download a digital copy, they fire it up. What are your tips for these new people starting out in the world of Elden Ring? I mean, what I wrote down is that in some ways this is the most accessible Souls game. Hey, you sound like you believe it. You sound like your heart is really in this. it is. I mean, like, for a lot of the things I said, like, you can see a little bit more clearly how your stats affect your weapons, which is helpful. Like, that's definitely something that wasn't as clear in Bloodborne. It's just I picked this weapon that's really cool, and I randomly updated my stats because I saw these other numbers went up. And whether it was actually good for the weapon I was using, who knows? Maybe I kept advancing, so I guess it's okay. Um, But then in this, like, you could actually physically see that, so that's good. Um, But I still don't think the game cares about new players. Like, kind of like what Brian was saying, I I really don't think... I think it's just, like, you either get it or you don't, and... uh, Kind of like you had said, and I don't think they approach it from this direction, but if they got your money, that's all they care about. I don't think that's necessarily the case. They want to make a really crazy, 
interesting game for the people that enjoy their crazy, punishing, interesting games. But uh, as a new player, I don't know. It's it's really hard. Like, because I feel like a game like this is fun to just go out and explore, but it's also one of those things like blindly going out and exploring. Like sometimes you just don't understand what you're doing. And so like, it would be good to get like help a a little bit um, to understand a little bit, but then it feels like completely anathema to the experience to go look at a walkthrough to try to get help through an area. Sorry, completely what? Anathema. So it's like, it's like the opposite of what you should be doing. Good word. To experiencing it. And so that that's what that's just what's so frustrating is it's like okay first off don't fight Margaret till you're level 20 there that's right. what I'll tell new players <laughs> um you can go up to Stormvale Castle to the entrance of Stormvale Castle because that's kind of a cool area um but then wander somewhere else you know um because you'll lose your ruins if you go in there because yeah. it'll kill you in there and you can only get them by going back yeah. in and then you're just screwed yeah. if you had a bunch on you if you're gonna go in to experience market make sure you stop at the site of grace right before that spend whatever you care about uh and then yeah you know go get good i think uh i think i mentioned this earlier but there is just a hump to souls games and like if you're a player who refuses to look things up online refuses to go out a game like you're just it's probably not going to click with you. And if like, if you haven't jumped into a souls game at this point, like how big is that potential audience of people that are going to love souls games that haven't like tried it yet? I think there's people that have though. Right. And so it really just does depend upon like how you find that experience and whether you do get lucky and find a path that you're, you know, enjoying going down, right. To get to the point where you can get there. Or if you have like people coaching you to, Hey, do this, do this. And then I'll get you to this point, you know? Um, you know, maybe that maybe if you have that, you're going to your mileage is going to you know vary a lot better than for other people. Um, but like you know, and I just thought of this. Like I think Sekiro in the first two hours has so many more narrative hooks that draw you into the game and what you're doing. And and it's like so I was invested in that. Now I still stopped playing the game, but it, it was I was much more invested in the narrative and willing to sort of move forward in that game than I would be Elden Ring. That game pissed me off because I'm like, this is proof that they know how to do a story uh-huh. and how to make it so that it's actually something I can understand. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing it the other way? And, and and to your point about wandering the world, if you don't feel like you're getting stronger, you don't feel like you're learning, it does take away from the joy of looking at the world. Like, mm-hmm. what are you out there doing? It's, it's again, going back to Monster Hunter for me, it's, it's so much either you two things happen either you play long enough where you get hooked and you love it or you never quite get to that threshold because there's too much bs in the way to get there mm-hmm. that's the two things that happen and fortunately i got far enough into it where i i got to the point where i'm like hey i'm loving it but like up until margit that first that first boss i mean that that was brutal i fought them 15 20 times and finally got through and that just that kind of crushing difficulty, I don't get the dopamine hit after the win. I just go, thank God it's over. <laughs> so that's that's part of the problem I have with these games. I get the dopamine hit, and that's why I think I'm addicted to Souls games. I want to go back, and I want to play and beat them all. Like, they're so frustrating. They're so maddening. But, like, I feel really good when I overcome those challenges. So I just want to do it. Man, so uh, That is so not me. <laughs> 
Yep. So our tips for noobs is uh, probably don't get started if you haven't yet. Uh, blood, Bloodhound step. I would tell you if you can get that early, it's going to give you a lot more movement options. It makes things easier. Where do you find Bloodhound step? Uh, it's it's on that first plateau. I'm not sure where. It's in a boss fight. Um, and then the second thing with it is just make sure that if you are in an area and you see that little uh, tombstone with scripting show up in the bottom left portion of the screen, it is telling you that it is appropriate there to use your summons because there is going to be more enemies in that area. It's telling you, hey, if you want to make it easier, do this for yourself. And one more quick note on summons, unless you have something to no, interject. You can use you can bring in NPCs for boss fights, and I was trying to fight Margaret, and I was really struggling with it. And Phoenix was watching me play, and at one point I brought in a summon, and I did slightly better. But then I'm like, well, I can probably handle this on my own. Like I want to be a real FromSoft player. I want the true accolades of everything this game has to offer. And I got my butt kicked a few more times. She's like, why don't you bring that person in with you? Like, what are you doing? It's like, well, honey, I'm trying to do this like a real player. Which she's like, just use the stupid guy and keep going. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and from then on, I just used summons, and the gameplay experience was much better for me. That's like one of my favorite comics. They're just like, oh, yeah, you know, I finally beat this game using no power-ups and minimal life, and I'm going to post it online. And then they go to the developers and go, well, why? <laughs> it's like, what's, what's the point of it? It's your own ego. Yeah. Yeah, no. At that point, that definitely was what it is. It's just your ego. Hey, I've got a fair amount of that. Um, we are over three hours already, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but favorite areas and favorite boss fights. Burns, was there anything that you truly enjoyed outside of the catacombs in this game? So I, I like that, I like, well, you know, once you skirt it around, what, like the, the area where you're rising up towards Stormvale, let me see if I wrote down the name of the area there. Um, so it's that, between Limgrave and Stormfoot, the Stormfront Gate. Like, I really like that area through there. Um, a lot. Um, and, um, and then I actually did, I did like round table hold. Um, like, cause that's when you bump into a bunch of different like NPCs and you know, they won't shut up talking about Roderica apparently. And then I did what made me chuckle a second ago was I did meet Fia, um, who with, uh, the thong or whatever. And she did hold me and gave me Baldachin's blessing. So, and did you know that because of that, she also stole a portion of your life, so you heal slower and you have a less overall HP pool oh, until you cure yourself of it. <laughs> How do you cure yourself of it? Uh, I had no idea. It's there's a there's a spell you can use that'll remove it from you. But yeah, basically she curses you quietly, and if you don't know what that icon is just under your health bar, you can do that for the rest of the game, and you're like down a certain percent. Well, there you go. Bulbachin's blessing. Not so great. Yeah. Don't hug the chick. Great. Got it. Brian, your favorite areas and bosses are fights. Um, I really liked Kaled. Kaled is a big area where it's Kaled like, sucks. What's wrong with you? Kaled's awesome because it's showing what happens when the blight starts to like stretch out and the rot starts to take over. Yeah, apparently it's terrible. It is. It looks terrible. They've got these terrible wolves with huge heads that look like big old scrappy dudes and it's just weird. Um, but then I love the capital too because the capital is gigantic. Plus underneath the capital is in a very elaborate sewer system. So there's all sorts of fantastically interesting things down there. The fire giant fight was just over the top because he is huge and you can ride torrent during the fight because it's so massive that you need your horse to get around in that particular area which i thought was really really cool um 
But overall, anything where I can fight where it is a massively large character, um, FromSoft is really good about creating some of those interesting fight mechanics. Though Tree Sentinel was way up there too, but my god, was he hard to beat. For walking out of the the uh, original cave and to have one of them sitting right there, it's such an F you to the gamer. It's like, oh, welcome. <laughs> Come on over. <laughs> yeah, he killed me so many times. So one of the last notes I made, and this alludes something that you didn't talk about, and I'm just curious about it. So one of the last notes I made was, found Malefactor's Everjail. Doesn't sound like something I should activate, but might. Should I activate it or no? Heck yeah, the uh, Gales, I didn't actually know how to pronounce that word until right now, yeah, so I'm jails. glad. Yeah, it's the I'm... old way to spell jail. Oh, jail. Um, they are scattered. I think there's at least one in every major area. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because there's a boss fight in there. And like the first time I did it, I was carrying too many souls. I hit the button saying, oh, what is this here? It's like, oh, boss fight. Boss kills me. And like you get warped into this little area. And I'm like, oh, my souls are inside there. With that boss, like I can't beat him. So those 15K souls just gone forever. Whatever. That sucks. And uh, it turns out that... Uh, the instance that you get pulled into for this boss fight is mirrored in reality. So, like, if you die in there, your souls are just sitting on the earth somewhere. And I'm like, oh, I just I can't hack that boss right now. So those souls are just gone forever. And I never went back and checked. Eventually, I died and those souls are lost. But, like, if I had just gone back, they'd just be sitting on the earth waiting for me to pick them up. It's like, oh, well, great. I'm an idiot. But those are some pretty interesting fights. And an interesting thing about the jails is that if you accomplish a side quest within that area, someone will come in and help you in that fight. So, like, I did a couple on my own. I did a couple with helpers, and I just thought it was a really interesting, neat little thing. So, yeah, you should hit that button. That stove is hot. Do a side quest first? Um, given that it's in the first area, I never found the side quest that unlocked a helper for that one. I was in, I'll tell you the exact area I was in. Lakeshore. Lyernia Lakeshore was where I was for that one. And it was on the hill. There was a bunch of these weird dung beetle caterpillar dudes that were standing on end oh so funny you didn't find one on the windy hill is that uh storm hill probably not i walked past that area there's multiple ones too that i mean there's a bunch of these in different areas yeah there's one by the bridge of sorrows with the ballista that cuts off the weeping peninsula i did one in the weeping peninsula but i didn't find the side quest until after i had already done it's like oh this person's really mad about this thing. It's like, oh, I bet they would have helped me. I wish I would have <laughs> held off on that. One of the last ones in the game is where you unlock the summon for what's called the, the Black Knife Tish. And those are the things that basically killed the, the, the king of this world, the queen of this world, to, to make all this crap happen. And uh, that was probably the hardest boss fight in the game. You cannot summon anything to help you. And it is absurdly fast. And it takes like 40% of your life per hit. I mean, it wasn't a great three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the uh, final fight of Jedi Fallen Order. Uh, for my favorite areas and favorite fights, like I just I loved Stormvale Castle. I loved Rail Lucaria Castle. There was one library-like area that became one of my soul's grinding places with a pain in the butt archer. The academy was that the academy? Like I know you have to come back to it later with some MacGuffin to put in a hole. Yep, that's um, the academy. Yeah, so I was at the academy. I spent quite a bit of time there. I thought every catacomb was just a joy to play through. And I thought every one of these areas that I walked into within this giant, massive game, every micro area in it was so well designed and so well thought out that I just, I was constantly blown away by just how amazing Elden Ring was. Did you find the statues that would lead you to those catacombs? Uh, on occasion, yeah. yeah. You click on them and they're like, you just follow the strand all the way down. The door. I love that. I was like, oh, that's such a cool way to do it. Yeah, usually I'd follow the notes from other players mm-hmm. and then be thankful for the notes that pointed out ambushes and then uh, thankful for the notes that pointed out 
while I was like, this game must have been just absolutely excruciating if you're playing as the first player into the game. I wonder if some, though, in playtesting, some of those are left and then they persist there leading into that. Maybe. Like, I don't I know. If to it's some a vote extent, system. You can vote that certain ones are better than others. I wonder if, to some extent, like there's some of those that were like done in playtesting and left there from the developers to give it that feeling. I don't know. I've never played the game at launch, so I guess I'm not sure. A lot of them at launch was really trolly. <laughs> like, oh, go through here, prize. You walk in, you get stabbed in the back. It's like, oh my god. So, awesome. uh, yeah, the early guys are just trying to wreck your time. Overall thoughts and takeaways on the timeless classic masterpiece, High Water of Game Development, Elden Ring. Burns, let's start with you. Um, I mean, if I went back to a FromSoft game, maybe this should be the last thing I say, but if I went to a, back to a FromSoft game, it would be Bloodborne probably instead of this um it just the whole experience jived with me and was more fun comparatively um in my mind anyway maybe if i got over that hump it would change um the first like three to four hours of this game i loved it i was like i was like right there with you tom on like that experience and i thought it was really great and then after that the frustration just continued to overtake me and it wasn't just Margaret because I figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't going to beat Margaret and I wasn't ready to beat it. But then it was just like I kept wandering around through areas and like it was cool to like find like the little path that went along around the castle, you know, and it, it you know, I would say it felt like I was the only one that found it. But then again, I could see all the notes on the ground and I could see the shadows of people that are there at the same time or whatever kind of going through it. And and so it's like I, I know that I, I knew that, but that was like fun, like the exploration, the fun part of the exploration. But then it just seemed like I would find areas and there would be nothing there. So it's like, I have to come back here later to be able to see whatever's here or something will be here. Then, um, I would wander around and find some mobs that were fun to fight, some mobs that were easy to fight. Um, and it just, I felt like I kept wandering and finding NPCs that would tell me something, but then I would just be wandering again. And I just never really had that hook that pulled me in like it pulled you in. Um, which is unfortunate, because like I said, I really wanted to like this game. And I knew that it was going to be like a 50-50 shot as to whether I really enjoyed it or if I was going to bounce off of it because I struggle with open world games. You know, I'm sort of sure that plays a lot into this. But like, for all that I've said, I do understand like the greatness of the game. And I understand why people love it so much. And I get why a lot of people would say it's a masterpiece because there is a lot to love in this game and there's a lot of things out there um, that you can do and a lot of fun experiences. Um, it's probably just not for me. I want to add that I fought a giant lobster. <laughs> Those lobsters are so funny. It's just a giant freaking lobster and there's a whole bunch of them and I, that just that tickled my fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the, glad you enjoyed the Prawns and lobster. Tom's <laughs> just loving this game. Yeah. Seafood everywhere. Yeah. And croissants. Yeah, and the whole world of croissant, it's delicious. Like Cookie Monster over here. Um, 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 um. Uh, I, I thought it was a great game. I'm glad that we played it for the podcast, and this is a game that I'll definitely go back to. At currently 55 hours into it, it's probably going to be like my top played game on PlayStation this year. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's great. Brian, your overall thoughts and takeaways on Elden Ring. I think that it deserved Game of the Years because the things that it does well, it does really well. Like really, really changing a genre type well but i also think that there is a lot of areas where gaming has been smoothed out 
that they just refuse to adopt what maybe the industry standard is. And sometimes, you know, if you're using the industry standard, you're going to just wind up being boring. But I think sometimes it's just because this is maybe a simpler way to do it. FromSoft has a unique ability, I think, to be really polarizing. When, when you use the term bounced off, Joe, mm-hmm. that's a game that the, the only publisher that I have bounced off repeatedly is FromSoft. Mm-hmm. First time I played Bloodborne, I was like, this is stupid. I'm not going to play this. What about uh, old what's-their-name that made our favorite adventure games, Tales from the Borderlands? Oh, um, uh-huh. you bounced off them pretty good, Bree. Yeah, Telltale well, games. actually, yeah, Telltale. Yep. So did oh. so did they bounced off themselves financially too because they went oh. bankrupt. So um, <laughs> I guess I'm not the only one that wasn't liking their product. So, anyways, um, it's just interesting to me how because of I think honestly some of it comes down to the rabidness of their fan base. That's why they get away with some of these things. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing, and I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think from an exploration standpoint, I had a ton of fun. It was a, a unique world, and they, they let you find things in different layers. Like, if you guys actually look at the map, even if they're not marked, you can see, like, little brown ring, or, like, it's like a it's like a brownish circle with an orange ring around it. Those represent mines. So even if you don't have them marked on your map, you can physically see them and go there and do that. I think that's a cool little thing that you can do. But if you're... If you're punished so aggressively at times for dying and you're not improving and you're not getting better, you're not getting stronger, you're not leveling, what's the point? And I think too many people fall into that kind of a trap. And if enough people do it and you do it for long enough, the game's not worth playing anymore because now it's no longer fun to explore. Mm -hmm. It's not fun to explore when you go to a new area, you get murdered and you lose everything you did. That's not really incentivizing me to go out and see what the world has to offer. The world offers me death. That's great. I'm going to sit here in this church next to this waypoint and never move again. And that's what talk to this happens. big turtle. It's red. Right. Are you talking about the turtle with the Pope hat on? Yeah. Gotta love Pope Turtle. Yeah. He's a great dude. Yeah, he is. Um, but that's... Add I, Pope Turtle to your note burns. Yeah, you, you stopped about five hours too early. Um, but the thing is, is, overall, I enjoyed the game. It is a, it is a, something I have a love hate with because I don't relax during these games. I don't. I, there's a certain tension at all times when I play it that is unique to FromSoft. So um, if another Elden Ring comes up, will I play it? Sure. Is it also something like I resonated so much with you, Joe? And you're like, I played for a little bit. I was frustrated. I quit. I cannot tell you how many times that happens with FromSoft, mm-hmm. where you just the 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 frustration builds up too fast, and when that ratio falls out of balance, you stop playing. Well, and it's funny because um, I had that with Elden Ring, but before that, when I played Sekiro, I played the first two hours, really enjoyed it, was bought into the story. And then I heard other people playing the game and how frustrated they were getting. Not just Tom, there was other people too talking about different things. I was just like, I'm just going to stop playing the game for now and have it be a positive experience. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Yeah. I that beat first, the first little mini boss, you know. It took me a couple of fights, but I killed that big dude and... And yeah, Sekiro's a great experience. That is my favorite combat system that FromSoft has put out. It is so well done. It's fast. It's fluid. It's awesome. I like the grappling hook. Oh my god. It's just a great game, and I really hope that they use that in some other kinds of ways here going forward. Not me. I hope they uh, take the code for that big stupid bowl and flush it right down the FromSoft toilet. Okay, Tom. You either have to play Sekiro, or you have to play 
uh, the Avengers game because your save is broken. You have to start over from the beginning. Which do you choose? I'll take the broken janky tech demo. Okay. You got to play it through to completion. Even if you're under the same bug and you got to restart again, you got to play it for the full 30 hours to get there. Or you got to try Sekiro for 30 more hours. Well, I mean, even in an endless time loop, at least I get a couple of hours that I can enjoy there leading up to that game breaking bug over and over and over again. Whereas Sekiro, like I'm stuck between these two bosses and I don't feel like there's anywhere else for me to go. So it's like, it's either like a little bit of lead up to bang my head into the wall or just like walk in and smash my head against the wall over and over and over you and over again. You can beat that bull. It's just a little bit of patience and not panicking. You can do it. If you got to that point, your skill set is strong enough to beat that bull. I don't know, man. I, I just, I don't know when to block. I run frantically around the map trying not to get trampled and lit on fire. Like <laughs> Brian's like a motivational speaker over here. Tom, like, Tom, you can do it. Tom just completely devolves to fight or flight and he only goes with flight. <laughs> but the stupid bull, yeah, like yeah. give me my staff and my rock spell and yeah, I'll take down that bull, but yeah, I don't have to on Sekiro. It's flight or flight for Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Always has been. Always has been. Well, next month, we're going to fulfill our Final Fantasies together. Brian and Joey will be back to discuss Final Fantasy 16 and the Final Fantasy card game. Thank you so much for listening to this mammoth episode of Outside is Overrated. Please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Brian at Not on the Internet and for Joey Burns, the Hobbybox at Hobbybox Burns on Twitter, I'm Tom Sidlachik at Tom Sidlachik OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. <laughs> Did Tom get you in the position, Phoenix? Did he get the best? <laughs> Sorry. That was sultry. <laughs> that, was a, that was a little too sultry. Sorry, there's too many things you said there with Phoenix being right here that I had to point out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did a kid's choir uh, chime in when that was happening, too? No, that was after. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what we were playing D4. And mostly it's just Tom's voice. Yeah. What were the other three Ds? I'm not going to answer that, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs>